Hello there, little masters, and welcome once again to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, even the good stuff isn't quite good enough to drown our sorrows. No, it's, it's really just one big cup of woe tonight, and we're <laughs> draining it to the dregs. But hey, west to hell, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life lord of the market. I'm here with the man of the West, the Aragorn to my AMR, Alan Sisto. Thank you, Sean. Tonight, we are wrapping up our read of Chapter 21 of the Silmarillion of Turin Turambar. Now, this is the last of three episodes on the chapter, so if you haven't listened to the first two parts of our discussion, please check those episodes out before we continue on. This this last dose of misery just isn't complete without the first two. Be, you know, it'd be kind of like experiencing 80s music by going straight to the cure instead of starting with something only mildly depressing like Depeche Mode. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't want to go straight to that, no, that top no. level there. you got to ease yourself in. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is the story that ends uh, not with a U catastrophe, but just a plain old catastrophe. And, not and an uh, we're going to get to that. <laughs> not an apostrophe. <laughs> oh, man. Um, Sorry. But uh, we'll get to that soon enough. Um, first, though, I think we need to issue a brief um, karuk. <clears throat> don't say it. Karuk. Addendum. <laughs> Addendum. addendum. Let's call it an addendum to a previous conversation. Yeah, we, we spent a brief time in our first episode of this chapter talking about uh, the death of Rion, Morwen's sister-in-law, the, the mm-hmm. wife of Huor, the mother of Tuor. And even though she really doesn't play a part in this chapter, we kind of talked about it a little bit. Uh, we're going to get to her more in a couple episodes. We're going to get to her again in a couple of episodes. Yeah, and, and we're, I know we're both looking forward to that. I know it's Very one of our favorite so. stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in sort of our haste to get to the meat of uh, the Turin chapter, I think we might have comp- given sort of an incomplete picture of, of Rion's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about how she laid herself down upon the uh, the Howden Dengen, the Hill of the Slain, and died. Uh, and it was uh, it appears to have been a voluntary death, and we compared it to Muriel's choice to leave her body uh, and move on to Mandas. Uh, Mandas, <laughs> excuse me. And uh, still struggling with that one. Uh, barely um, so. And, uh, and we even compared it to Aragorn's voluntary surrender of his life at the end there. Yeah, and that's true um, as far as it goes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we would have given you all a more accurate picture if we'd pulled in some text from Unfinished Tales uh, of two orders yeah, coming yeah. to Gondolin. Uh, there we learn that when news of the, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears reached Dorloman, Rion, and, and I'm quoting from the chapter there, became distraught and wandered forth into the wild alone. Uh, and pregnant with Tuor, I might add. Uh, mm-hmm. The book goes on right. to say that she would have perished there in the wild, uh, but the Sindar came to her aid. She um, she lived with them for a while, and it was with them that she gave birth to Tuor. Now, right. yeah, so she, then, that's when she was going to yeah. go look for Huor. Um, one of the elves told her that he had died by the side of, uh, by, by his brother's side, by Hurin's side. And that was when she went to the house. Which Howland. we know that, which that obviously wasn't accurate because we know Hurin didn't even die. Well, died by the side of his died brother. Died by his side, I guess. But right, yeah, right. Because yeah, all of his died. people were, right. you know, his guard were slain. Yeah, never mind. I, I was reading that wrong. You're I right. know, yep. I did too. I thought the same thing. I'm like, wait a minute, but Hurin wasn't dead. Um, <laughs> But that's when she went to the Howthendangan, and there she laid her down and died. So it it still seems less of that, you know, suicide like, say, Denethor, and and more death by broken heart. But she was at least able to choose the place and time of her passing. Uh, So maybe a a better analogy then would be the death of Arwen uh, in Appendix A of The Lord of the Rings, where after Aragorn dies, she laid herself to rest upon Karen Amroth, and there is her green grave until the world Mm -hmm. is changed. Any, any mm-hmm. thoughts on that, Sean? Anything, maybe a better yeah. analogy for you? Well, I think I think Arwen is probably a little closer. I think the only thing that's kind of um, distinguishing this from Arwen is, you know, this word distraught, uh, mm-hmm. I just think is 
it seems to me a little bit more strong than uh, the sort of quiet sorrow we see with Arwen. But that and was think, when the wandering. I guess I'm trying to figure out if she's still yeah. distraught after giving birth to Tuor, or was the distraught nature what caused her to go into the wild? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, the other thing that I think of is you know, Arwen died after 120 years of marriage to Aragorn. Man, that's um, a long you know, time to be married to anybody. Yeah, she was probably ready to see him go. After, I mean, I'm celebrating 25 years this fall, but 120, I don't know. Yeah. Come back and talk yeah. to me in 95 years. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, she she lived a long life with her husband. You know, she got yeah. to see her son grow up and her kids grow up. Rion right. didn't get that. And so I could see that's there true. being a reason why she would be a bit more, you know, probably more in shock Distraught. maybe than our, Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know... I, Hey, I, I'm just kind of psychoanalyzing now. I mean, the text really doesn't tell us any of this. No. I, I guess, I guess, kind of to your point, um, Rion sensed that she. I, I think Rion sensed that she had a role to play. Yeah, and I think so. she saw it through, and then having seen it through, died. Um, and that, you know, is certainly um, certainly like Arwen, I guess. Yeah. Um, and really, but, kind uh, of but, uh, almost two parts. You know, two two jobs. Yeah. One was to bear Tuar, and the other was to find mm-hmm. Huar. And once she had given birth to Tuar, and, and find then found yeah, Huar was dead. Then yeah. her purpose is done. That's true. So, that's true. So because she was you know, I, for him. Yeah. So I'm sure her emotional state was probably still very different from Arwen, but I definitely think there's some similarity in terms of you know accomplishing your task yeah. and then moving and, on and the voluntary nature of it too. Yeah. 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 Okay. So was there anything else we wanted to touch on before we get into what I'm sure is going to be a very lengthy discussion tonight? <laughs> Fair warning that. Yeah, Sean. There is something I want to mention before we uh, go on to wrap up this chapter. The Prancing Pony Podcast is proud to support MythMoot Four a combination literary conference and fan convention sponsored by Signum University. This year's MythMoot runs from June 1st to 4th at the beautiful National Conference Center in Leesburg, Virginia, where the theme is Invoking Wonder. Special guests for MythMoot include Tolkien scholars Verlin Flieger and Michael Drought and the famous Tolkien artist Ted Naismith. You can find out more by visiting signumuniversity.org and clicking on the link for MythMoot. Registration ends soon, so sign up today. I'm sorry to say that Sean and I won't be there, at least not this year, but you can tell us and the rest of the Prancing Pony podcast community all about it on our social media channels. One last thing, Sean, do we have anything from old Barlaman to start with tonight? I don't think we've heard from him for a little while. No, you know, we haven't. Um, We actually do have two questions that I would like to address tonight, uh, but I want to address them in context. So I'm not going to read the questions now. Uh, I'm just going to say Tarek in Chicago and Maya in Michigan, stay tuned because we have some questions from both of you up uh, in this episode later on. Very good. Well, then, on with the discussion. Why don't you start us off with a, uh, a brief recap of how we got here? Okay. Yes. Yeah, uh, sort of the, uh, the, the recap of the, yeah. the, what I like to consider the Beleriandic Greek tragedy. Um, <laughs> That's about right. So uh, we saw in our first episode on this, basically, Turin was fostered in Doriath, um, had a little uh, argument over dinner, which ended badly for the other Food guy. Fight. And then. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then so uh, he ended up leaving Doriath, uh, went on a series of misadventures. He took to a life of uh, of uh, brigandry and outlawdom. Ooh, I don't even know brigandry. how a word. <laughs> Thank you. You like that? I like that word um, very much. But then uh, after, you know, kind of being out there in the wild with the outlaws, Beleg, Kuthalian, caught up with him. Uh, they were good friends back in Doriath. Um, and they right kind of until, had a. Yeah. Right up until Turin killed him. By yeah, mistake, pretty much right up until at the end of him. our first episode. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, Turin took Beleg's sword, Anglahil, which had actually been forged by Aeol. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, more on that tonight. Uh, more on that tonight. And eventually, um, he reforged it as Gurthang, uh, mm-hmm. the Iron of Death. Um, 
in our second episode, we saw Turin befriend Gwyndor and go to Nargothrond. Mm-hmm. Um, there, Finduilas, the daughter of Orodreth, fell in love with him. And Gwyndor, um, really, uh, credit to the guy, he was in love with Finduilas, but he actually. Oh, yeah, so much. Um, more than anybody in this chapter, maybe. Yeah, really. Except maybe Beleg. Beleg. Um, but uh, Gwyndor, he was in well, love we'll with we'll see Fyndor a lot Lass. of good from Mablung tonight, too. That's true. Yeah, Mablung was, is up there on my list, he rocks. too. yeah. Yeah. But Gwyndor, you know, he was in love with Finduilas, but still he supported, you know, yeah. uh, their thing um, and told her, go get him. But there are some things you should know about him. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, uh, you know, meanwhile, Turin is just rising, rising, rising in estimation of everybody in Nargothrond. He becomes basically a chief advisor to Orodreth. Um, and convinces the people of Nargothrond to build a bridge across the river Narog and start fighting openly instead of in secret. Well, yeah, you got to get, uh, got to have a nice passageway for the uh, the big army to go out. Right, exactly. Yeah, Turin did. He just had no taste for their way of warfare. He wanted to great deeds out in the open where he could just he could shine and let his uh, honor. Let it, let his ego stretch a little bit. <laughs> give his um, give his uh, give his ego, his ego some elbow a little room. breathing room. Yeah, elbow room. There stretch those ego legs. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, this was received. Uh, this advice was received well by the folks of Nargothrond, but uh, elves from the Falas actually came warning them not to do it. Um, Ulmo himself had warned them against it, but they did it anyway. And so, Oops. sure enough, Glaurung the dragon came with a host of orcs and crossed the bridge because, mm-hmm. duh, he's a um, dragon, <laughs> and that's a bridge. And and he didn't have wings, so he needed a bridge to cross. Exactly. Lays waste to Nargothrond. Everybody dies. Orodreth is killed. Gwyndor is killed. Uh, the orcs take Fyndulas prisoner, and uh, and Gwyndor tells her to go. Tells Turin to go save her, saying that that's the only thing that's going to save Turin from his own uh, his own ill fate. So of course Turin went to save her. <laughs> <laughs> you, right? You'd right? like to think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you'd like to think so. Yes. He uh, he goes in the opposite direction because he's Turin. Um, he actually, okay. He was fooled by Glaurung. Yeah. yeah. Um, and thinking that, uh, Morwen and Neonor, his mother and sister were actually back in Dor Loman and were in danger. So he went straight to Dor Loman while Glaurung settled in for a nice nap with his new treasure. <laughs> uh, he gets to Dor Loman, finds his mother and sister not there because they've already gone to Doriath to look for him. Um, gets mad at all the Easterlings that have taken over Dor Loman, um, kills them all. Uh, and then... Comes back south to find out that he was, of course, too late to save Fyndulas, and she's actually been uh, very sadly pinned to a tree by the orcs that had captured her. And uh, with her dying breath, she cried out, basically um, paraphrasing here, but basically that she's still waiting for him. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. Which is which is awful. So uh, we pick up today with uh, Turin having, uh, you know, sort of just left that behind. He's just come to the forest of Brethil um, and taken up with some of the holiday in there because. He hasn't ruined their lives yet, so I guess he is. Here he is. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sorry. I'm being, being especially flippant as part of, of the story. Because what else can you do? Breathless um, next. So that, yeah. yeah, exactly right. Breathless next. Uh, and so that's where we find him today. Yeah. Did I miss that's, anything? That's a, no, I don't think so. That's an awesome little summary. Um, I'll just We'll just dive right in. I'm going to start. We, we last off uh, last left off with wielded rather the bow and the spear. So I'm going to start with the first uh, paragraph and a little bit more. Now new tidings came to Doriath concerning Nargothrond, for some that had escaped from the defeat in the sack and had survived the fell winter in the wild, came at last to Thingol seeking refuge, and the march wardens brought them to the king. And some said that all the enemy had withdrawn northwards, 
and others that Glaurung abode still in the halls of Felagund, and some said that the Morbegil was slain, and others that he was cast under a spell by the dragon and dwelt there yet as one changed to stone. But all declared that it was known to many in Nargothrond ere the end that Mormegil was none other than Turin, son of Hurin of Dorloman. Then Morwen was distraught, and refusing the counsel of Melian, she rode forth alone into the wild to seek her son, or some true tidings of him. Well, there you go. I, I have to laugh a little bit about the refusing the counsel of Melian. You, because, you think, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is the Silmarillion, so nobody this listens to Melian. Nobody listens to Melian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, you've got Amaya. She, yeah. what's, she knows things, y'all. She does. Listen to her. You should. Uh, it's never wise to uh, to refuse the counsel of Melian, as we've learned. Nope. Um, always a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, you know, I, there's, I, I don't want to necessarily go too far into this, but, and we won't do this on every point, but in this particular point, it's really important to kind of go into um, the Children of Huron version because we get so much mm-hmm. more there. Uh, not just more in terms of the narrative, but more in terms of Morwen's thought process. And I think this is really important because the curse isn't just on Turin. It's on Hurin's kin. It's on all whom Hurin loves. And since mm-hmm. we're going to spend some time talking about that curse, I want to make sure we get to that. But uh, but before we do, let's see what um, kind of the rest of this part of the story, what do we get? We get uh, Mablon goes after. Well, what else? Yeah. Let's see. Um, Neonor hides. Trying so Neonor hides own. there. Yeah. Uh, Neonor hides, yeah. Yeah, she, so she I, pulls a um, Dernhelm. She pulls a Dernhelm. She disguised herself and she goes along with him. Yeah, that's right. We, we get that uh, the fearlessness of her house was hers. Oh, yeah. Which I think is a fascinating phrase. This, uh, You know, you, you see there's boldness there. But yeah. uh, but also because this is, you know, a, a child of her and I just can't help thinking, man, this is just another bad decision for this family. Yeah. Um, but you'll see in the Children of Huron version that her purpose in going is actually to get her mother to come back. Oh, uh, that's initially. right. Okay. So I, okay. Think, I think it's, yeah. you know, it's it's a really interesting – let's, let's go – I'll go ahead and pull that up. Because, yeah, why don't you go to that one? Yeah. yeah um, so Thingol, not exactly known for offering or listening to good advice, suggests nope. uh, after they learn that the Black Sword <laughs> is Turin, that, that she ponders this for a while. Morgoth, he says, may be trying to draw them into acting with rashness. Wow, this is Thingol. I mean, he's giving some pretty good wisdom here. Uh, maybe he's been listening to Melian. I don't know. But he suggests that even Turin would want her to stay in Doriath where she's safe. Mm-hmm. Morwen's response, I got to tell you, this is like, this is Feanor-like in its misunderstanding. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, wait. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so he says, Here would he think you better bestowed than in any other land that remains, in the keeping of Melian. For Hurin's sake and Turin's, I would not have you wander abroad, in the black peril of these days. You did not hold Turin from peril, but me you will hold from him, cried Morwen, in the keeping of Melian. Yes, a prisoner of the girdle. Long did I hold back before I entered it, and now I rue it. Nay, if you speak so, Lady of Dorloman, know this, the girdle is open. Free you came hither, free you shall stay, or go. Then Melian, who had remained silent, spoke. Go not hence, Morwen. A true word, you said, this doubt is of Morgoth. If you go, you go at his will. 
<laughs> so oh, boy, get... boy, she she could have just thrown out the word thrall. Thrall, just... <laughs> I know. <laughs> Prisoner of the girdle. Wow. Um, but you know, Melian's got a little bit more to say here to Thingol. Is really she? Morwen's in a delicate state. Let's put it that way. So Thingol mm-hmm. turned. Morwen basically says, "I'm going anyway. If you really care that much, you'll send some people with me." And he says, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I command my people and they're not going anywhere. So he goes He goes to Melian and asks, you know, should I keep her from going? Melian says, against the coming in of evil, I may do much, but against the going out of those who will go, nothing. That is your part. If she is to be held here, you must hold her with strength. Yet maybe thus you will overthrow her mind. So hmm. she's clearly you know, very um, emotionally fragile at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, keeping, and so basically, yeah. so Melian is basically saying, first of all, uh, by the way, there's no such thing as a prisoner of the girdle. She's You're saying right. that's the thing all basically. <laughs> I can't do anything to stop someone from leaving. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, you know, if you want to hold her, you'll have to do it with force. and Which could um, break her. Yeah. Which could break her, yeah. Uh-huh. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. Isn't it? And so just like like you said, you know, Feanor didn't grasp the word thrall. More more uh-huh. one obviously doesn't understand what it means to be a prisoner. <laughs> um and, and so as a result, she ends up acting in haste exactly rashly that's as Morgoth had intended. Just what Morgoth act. wants. And then yeah, and, and Melian even said that to her. Yeah. And there's even a line where she says that she wants to go after Turin because none here will do aught but tarry till it's too or let me try that again. Because none <laughs> here will do aught but tarry till too late. Doesn't that sound like Feanor complaining about the Valar oh, not about doing the Valar anything? wanting to wait and kind of take counsel, right? Right. Before going after Morgoth. And yet we know that haste is not the best. <laughs> Don't yeah. be hasty. Don't be hasty. I love that word, haste. Well, <laughs> Don't be you, hasty. You really... Well, you really start to see where Turin gets it from, don't Doesn't, you? I mean, don't you? Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm not... Look, I'm not... I don't... I'm not nearly as harsh on Morwen as I am on Turin, but, you know, definitely in the children of Turin, she does come across as um, sort of the the source of a lot of his his bad decisions, I think, you know, sort of her influence. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think she was strong in a lot of ways, and I think she was, um, you know, kind of steadfast and um, and fearless in a lot of ways, but she was also stubborn in some ways that weren't so good, and and you really see that here. That is the weak side of steadfastness, yeah, Mm -hmm. and she, she definitely displays that here. Uh, and she continues to do so because, again, this is staying in the Children of Huron version, which we won't do. I think I've only got one other passage from that in the entire <laughs> episode, but we're dumping we would it be all here up for you a up much front. longer time than yeah. we're going to be here. Um, but she, uh, so so Mabling's crew follows. Neonor's revealed, which you know we we got to here uh, in mm-hmm. the main version of the text, but in the Children of Huron version, Neonor gets some great lines, trying to give her mother some wisdom. She says. If the wife of Hurin can go forth against all counsel at the call of kindred, said Neonor, then so also can Hurin's daughter. Mourning you named me, but I will not mourn alone for father, brother, and mother. But of these you only have I known, and above all do I love, and nothing that you fear not do I fear. In truth little fear was seen in her face or her bearing. Tall and strong she seemed, for of great stature were those of Hador's house. And thus clad in elvish raiment, she matched well with the guards, being smaller only than the greatest among them. "'What would you do?' said Morwen. "'Go where you go,' said Neonor. "'This choice indeed I bring, to lead me back and bestow me safely in the keeping of Melian, for it is not wise to refuse her counsel, or to know that I shall go into peril if you go.' For in truth, Neonor had come most in hope that for fear and love of her, 
her mother would turn back, and Morwen was indeed torn in mind. It is one thing to refuse counsel, said she. It is another to refuse the command of your mother. Go now back. No, said Neonar. It is long since I was a child. I have a will and wisdom of my own, though until now it has not crossed yours. I go with you, rather to Doriath, for reverence of those that rule it. But if not, then westward. Hmm. So, you know, she... So that is really, yeah, yeah that's really clear. That's You're really right. Telling, yeah, she isn't was, it? Yeah, she was, she really was trying to persuade her to come back. Yeah. And it was only, if you refused to, well, then I'm not letting you go alone. Right. <laughs> I'm not gonna, if you're going to go do something stupid, I'm not going to let you do something right. stupid alone. Because I've already lost yes. my father and my brother who I never know, wh- whom I've never mm-hmm. known. I don't want to lose you. You're right. the only one I've ever known. So, right. Yeah, it's tough. But I mean, also, yeah, but yeah. I, yeah, but I also like the, this sort of plea to listen to wise counsel. I know, you know? twice. It's not wise to refuse yeah. your counsel, and then I want to go back and out of reverence of For those reverence. that rule it. Isn't mm-hmm. that beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and we certainly, we revere wow. wisdom. We revere, yeah, yeah. So Neonor's clearly wiser than her mom. She points out this is foolish. Yeah. Um, but in the end, you know, she's a child of Hurin, and her stubbornness wins out too. Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. I love that stuff. That really, a, I think, tells a us good, a lot about Morwen. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that in. That's really, really good. Yeah, I, I couldn't help it. I, I looked through the Children of Horan for this entire chapter. Um, you know, I kind of skimmed the book. I mean, didn't have time to read the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> on top of the chapter. But, you know, I, I wanted to see whether there were some pieces like we did when we bring in stuff from history of middle earth and, mm-hmm. and there were a bunch, but, but this was one that really, I felt brought a lot uh, to yeah. the table. Well, I'm glad you did it because you know, it, it, it shows for anybody who's listening, who hasn't read it yet and who maybe is reading the Silmarillion or reading these stories of the first stage for the first time, you do see that, you know, it's, what is it? 200 pages, I think close yeah. to 300 pages. Yeah, Children like um, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's close to 300 pages. Um, and uh, it, it really does. There, there is a lot there that's not in this version. Um, and you do get a, a bit more of the, uh, you know, a bit more of the drama, a bit more mm-hmm. of the character motivation and stuff like that that kind of makes for a more complete story. Yeah. Than what we get out of the Silmarillion. So, uh, yeah, that's a really good illustration of that. Well, I'm happy to have found it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, the long story short, too late, they, um, <laughs> you know, Bablung finds them, can't convince them. They go forward. What happens next, though, when they get close to Nargothrond? You know, before I get to that, I want to point out one word in here yeah, yeah. that I think is really key. And it's this word. It's in the paragraph right before what I'm about to read. Sure. Um, oops. Uh, it's this paragraph that starts with, They came upon Morwen by the banks of Sirion, and right. Mablung besought her to, to return to Menegroth. Menegroth. Uh, ah, it's in the Silmarine where we get, She, she was, was Fae. Fae. Morwen We've was seen Fae. seen that before. And I'm curious. I don't know if you have. You probably don't have your children of her in front of you. I'm curious if that's in there. Uh, well, I can. I can certainly pull that up. Actually, mm-hmm. um, in the meantime, let's talk about Faye because that, that yeah, came well, up uh, with Feanor. It also came up with. Uh, we did a little well, analysis, didn't we? We looked at. We, I mean, because we did. did uh, yeah, there's. Yeah, there's a, there's a few references to it. I mean, there's Feanor a few uses of Faye it in, at one in, point. Uh, in Lord of the Rings, right? Um, yeah, Frodo is Faye. Uh, when he's kind of going into Mordor, um, it's always this. Well, it really means like sort of mad with this sense of impending death. You know, you know, right. you're about to, you feel like you're about to die and you're just kind of like, you know, 
nothing to lose, I guess, just sort of this madness that comes from. Well, let's uh, uh, to make sure we get the point. Tolkien actually used it quite a bit. Uh, first, yeah. after after Morwen refuses the counsel of Thingol and Melian, uh, Thingol was heavy hearted, for it seemed to him that the mood of Morwen was fey, and he okay. asked Melian whether she would not restrain her by her power. Uh, then we get. Um, um, Oh, so it's actually in that in that debate. It's right before that. Yeah, yeah, right in that in that uh, passage that I was quoting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then we get Mablung saying to his his company, "Now they are all fey, and I like it not. More do Mm -hmm. I dread this errand of the king than the hunting of the wolf." (laughs) Wow! (laughs) But what is to be done? So, um, yeah, they are all fey. So he's talking about uh, Hurin's kin in that case. He says it's not. It's by lack of counsel, not courage. Boy, does yeah. Mabling sum up the entire story in this one sentence? Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Truly, much. it is by lack of counsel, not of courage, that Hurin's kin bring woe to others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so true. Let me talk about that fearlessness. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Mabling, so Mabling it's, notices it's it, and he repeats it again to them. He says, "Faye, are you both and foolhardy?" <laughs> okay. Uh, so. So yeah, it's definitely it's definitely, definitely there. <laughs> it's you know it's a we've used it. I mean, we well we've seen it in regards to Feanor in the Silmarillion. Um, I think I found it. Fi- it appears yes. four times in the Silmarillion. Twice yep. in regards to Feanor. Yep. This is number three, and we'll get number four later in this episode. But it's it's never a good thing. I mean, it's no. it's always referring to someone who's just kind of just kind of lost it, you know. Um, but it's uh, I, I just thought it was really fascinating that it's used here because it's a word that we have talked about. Yeah. I agree. No, I'm glad you pointed that out because I actually didn't catch that when I was skimming. And Faye's yeah. a big thing. So I'm yeah. glad you, glad you yeah. pulled that out. Yeah, sure thing. So now we get so to find then, out. Yeah. As they approach Nargothrond, here's where we get to. Uh, so I'm going to. No, he's not napping anymore. <laughs> but Glaurung was aware of all that they did. And he came forth in heat of wrath and lay into the river. And a vast vapor and foul reek went up in which Mablung and his company were blinded and lost. Then Glaurung passed east over Narog. Seeing the onset of the dragon, the guards upon Amon Aethir sought to lead Morwen and Neonor away and fly with them with all speed back eastwards. But the wind bore the blank mists upon them, and their horses were maddened by the dragon stench and were ungovernable, and ran this way and that, so that some were dashed against trees and were slain, and others were borne far away. Thus the ladies were lost, and of Morwen, indeed, no sure tidings came ever to Doriath after. But Neonor, being thrown by her steed, yet unhurt, made her way back to Amon Aethir, there to await Mablung, and came thus above the reek into the sunlight. And looking westward, she stared straight into the eyes of Glaurung, whose head lay upon the hilltop. Oh my. Huh, so he's aware... He's not taking his oh, yes. nap anymore. Um, nope. The stench. There's something about this, the kind of this feel of the, the battlefield here where they're the blank mists and maddened by the dragon stench. That must have been something awful. Awful. Yeah. It, I, yeah. What would, what would dragon stench smell like? I Just can't death, imagine. Death, <laughs> I can't. Just, just got to be rotten. Yeah. Uh, rotting flesh. I mean, like, yeah. Rotting maybe. flesh. and. And like the like the worst reptile terrarium. Like if you ever had that friend oh, who had snakes yeah. and terrariums, okay, but he didn't I'm clean up after. Idea. Oh man, that, <laughs> that that big 
iguana thing. <laughs> no, but it's it's got to be something worse that than that. That guy in my college dorm, I was like, what are you doing, man? Everybody had that one guy they knew who, who, who was like really into reptiles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's something, I mean, it's something horrible. I mean, this is a, yeah. you know, this is a creature that should not be. It, it's You're right. To, it is an unnatural thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to have an unnatural stench. And every time I see uh, Tolkien refer to smells, uh, I always you know think about some of the reading we've done about World War One. Yeah. Uh, in fact, by the by the time this uh, by the time this episode releases, I might have uh, I might have an olfactory essay up on the Prancing Pony Pond. <laughs> olfactory <laughs> essay. <laughs> I've, got, I've got something in mind that, you know, uh, that technology's might... come a long way with the Internet. We can include video, audio. We, we can't touch smell screens, but with, there is no smell of vision, <laughs> and I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's probably probably so. for the best. Oh my! But, and then uh, of course we don't even know where Morwen goes. Uh, you know, we we'll see her again no. at the end of the story, but she, I, I don't think we ever find out that's exactly incredible what happened to, me. to her during this. I time. know that is that is incredible to me. We were talking about this question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's obviously she doesn't have the same encounter with Glaurung that Neonor does, so. Thankfully, none of yeah. that happens to yeah. Thankfully, um, all we see is what happens when we you know when we meet her again later. And yeah, yeah. I, I can't imagine where she was. You know that actually makes me think of something. We'll we'll get to this at that point when we address Morwen at the end of the story. But there's a key thing at the end of the story that differentiates Morwen from Turin and and Neonor in terms of the curse, the effectiveness of the curse. I think you know where oh, I'm going with that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I wonder if some of that has to do with the fact that she didn't encounter Glaurung. That he was such an effective tool of the curse um, that, you know, that he, he really was the chief instrument of the was, curse. With his he was lives, the chief instrument. He? Yeah. So you just, you know, you got to wonder uh, about that. But yeah. Um, Very interesting. I, I'll go ahead and read the next couple paragraphs. Then we'll discuss yeah. this whole um, meeting with Glaurung. Her will strove with him for a while, but he put forth his power. And having learned who she was, he constrained her to gaze into his eyes and he laid a spell of utter darkness and forgetfulness upon her, so that she could remember nothing that had ever befallen her, nor her own name, nor the name of any other thing. And for many days she could neither hear, nor see, nor stir by her own will. Then Glaurung left her standing alone upon Amon, upon Amon Ethir, and went back to Nargothrond. Now Mablung, who greatly daring had explored the halls of Felagund when Glaurung left them, fled from them at the approach of the dragon, and returned to Amon Ethir. The sun sank, and night fell as he climbed the hill, and he found none there save Neonor, standing alone under the stars as an image of stone. No word she spoke or heard, but would follow if he took up her hand. Therefore in great grief he led her away, though it seemed to him vain, for they were both like to perish, succorless in the wild. Utter darkness and forgetfulness. What a horrible, horrible experience that must have been. I know. Can't it's, hear, can't yeah. see, can't remember even how to speak. Mm-hmm. Not remembering I mean, anything at all. She's she's lost everything. And I'm always struck by how um, how childlike she is after yes. this. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll get some of this. Um, you know, she just, she... She has no words for things, no. um, and she she won't move unless she you know you, you take her by the hand she'll follow, but she won't go anywhere yeah. of her own accord. Um, yeah, you know uh, that's very childlike, and 
And just hearing you read that passage from the Children of Hurin of what she was like before, because we don't get that in the Silmarillion. We see how strong she was. We see how wise she was. Mm -hmm. And we see how she stood tall in the face of a very, you know, scary proposition. Very much so. And then to see what she what she's reduced to after her encounter with Glaurung, it's heartbreaking. And yet there's a little bit of maybe naivete in in Children of Hurin that we see in her. Um, I'm again... I'm sorry. I said I wasn't going to bring children of Hurin back up, but there's a little bit here. It, it, we see in this text that um, having learned who she was, he constrained her to gaze into his eyes. In children of Hurin, we find out how he recognizes her because he doesn't like look at her and go, oh, I've seen your picture on the 10 most wanted list in Angband. Um, it's her own statement that identifies her for him. He refers, she's talking about, uh, I, I, he's, he basically asks her, what are you here for? I'm I'm looking for Turin. Um mm. Glaurung refers to him as a boaster but a craven and asked why she was looking for him. And she said, you lie. The children of Ahuran at least are not craven. We fear you not. And so Ahuran's oh. daughter revealed to his malice. So he didn't know that was her. But she was think willing to identify herself. Do you think that's naivete or is it pride? Maybe a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's certainly she wants to say, I'm not afraid of you either. You know, right. there is that that sort of pride. <laughs> it, it is. It is interesting that Glaurung called her in a boaster and a craven, and, and she says, um, "Nah, we're not craven." Yeah, but, but she's obviously <laughs> she's, a boaster. Yeah, she's, that's a very good point. She has nothing uh, to say about the boaster part, right? Um, oh, that's good. <laughs> that, that's interesting. I, I yeah, because I, I think if I were to if I were to read that, just sort of just kind of read it cold without us having talked about this, I would see that as uh, brave, but. Like misguided, yeah, you know, yeah, which yeah. is so much of Turin. Um, yeah. Naive, I think, is true too. I mean, mm-hmm. she's she's suckered in by the dragon, yeah. um, so there's a bit of that too. But, but wow, yeah, that's really your identity. I mean, we learned that in the Hobbit. It's a bad idea to mm-hmm. say too much to a dragon. Oh, that's true. Yeah, uh, you know, the, <laughs> if you could <laughs> keep your wits about you, don't tell him anything. Right. <laughs> oh, my name? I don't have one. I don't. I don't right. Yeah. Although know. you got to figure, maybe Bilbo, maybe Bilbo knew that because of uh, this story. That may be true. Yeah, it may very well be. <laughs> oh yeah, we know what happened to Turin. I remember what a dragon did to the children of Hurin. <laughs> I have that book on my shelf. Oh man, it's got a very nice Alan Lee cover. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no doubt about that. I'm sure you know Bilbo had plenty of copies. First editions, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just a reminder before we move on about who Mablung is, because we haven't heard from him in a little while. And, you know, we've, we saw a lot of Beleg earlier before we didn't right. see any more of Beleg. Um, this was a guy, he's, he was one of, one of the only two messengers to the Marath Adathad from Doriath way back when the Noldor had first come over. Uh, he was involved in the hunt for Karkaroth. He was the guy who cut mm-hmm. the belly and gave the Silmaril to Baron. Right, that's right. He went with Beleg to Nirnaith Arnoidiad. Um, again, being the only two from De- uh, Doriath to do that. He oh, also that's right. Yep, yeah, okay. yeah, because they, they didn't right. want to, part they, of the great. They ended deeds. up having to march with uh, uh, Fingon. Fin- yeah, under Fingon's banner, yeah. they had yeah. allied themselves to the, to the to the banner of Fingon. Right, that's right. He even was the one who advised Thingol. I'm sorry, advised Thingol. Advised Turin to seek Thingol's pardon after Cyros was killed. So I mean, okay. he's been involved in this. He. We'll see him kind of take on this this Beleg type role, um, but not yeah. for Turin. <laughs> you know, he he's the one who's trying to help her. Uh, yeah, he's clearly he's he's an amazing guy. He's a real hero. He's he not is, just yeah. a dude. 
He is no yeah. slouch. He is a no. he is one of the great heroes of Doriath. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point that we yeah. we need to clarify that. Yeah, because we um, haven't heard had, from him in a little while. It's good to kind of right. recap him. And I and I remembered him from the hunting of the wolf. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, I I'd forgotten that he was at the Nirnaith. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, one of only two at the Nirnaith, and one of only two to uh, attend the Marath So he's right. he's very familiar with the comings and goings, and uh, very much a a traveler and a and a warrior. Uh, I love yeah. his name, Mablung of the Heavy Hand. I oh, mean, you yeah. could just, this guy, <laughs> you know, Beleg fought with a bow, Mablung fights with an axe. You know? Oh, yeah. So he's, he's a big, strong love, elf. Yeah. So. I love the Sindar and their big, strong elves. We don't, we don't really get uh, enough of that. No, you're right. You know, the they're, they're all very, um, you know, they have agility. They have, uh, yeah. they fight with intelligence, but they're not, you know, big, strong. Right. Um, right. Like, like Mablung and, and even like Beleg. Poor Beleg. Yeah. I love Beleg. They're like the the Noldor are more like Inigo Montoya's, and you know the the Sindar probably not quite Fezix, but you know they're, well, yeah. they're definitely bigger guys. <laughs> I can't just imagine just imagining a whole bunch of Fezix walking around. <laughs> Stop Everybody running in the minutes. Everybody move! <laughs> oh, rest in peace, Andre the Giant. We I loved know, you, Andre. Yeah. Um, so an orc band attacks, uh, and and everybody flees. Neonor, for some reason, decides she needs to take her clothes off first. Um, and Mablon goes to Doriath to to give the news. Why don't you read that passage for us? The one I just yep. spoiled okay. for everybody. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, wait, I think I'm gonna read this. <laughs> okay. But Neonor, in that hour, recovered hearing and sight, and being awakened by the cries of the orcs, she sprang up in terror and fled ere they could come to her. Then the orcs gave chase, and the elves after. And they overtook the orcs and slew them ere they could harm her. But Neonor escaped them, for she fled, as in a madness of fear, swifter than a deer, and tore off all her clothing as she ran until she was naked. And she passed out of their sight, running northward. And though they sought her long, they found her not, nor any trace of her. And at last, Mablung in despair returned to Menegroth and told the tidings. Then Thingol and Melian were filled with grief, but Mablung went forth and sought long in vain for tidings of Morwen and Neonor. Hmm. But Neonor ran on into the woods until she was spent, and then fell, and slept, and awoke. And it was a sunlit morning, and she rejoiced in light as it were a new thing, and all things else that she saw seemed new and strange, for she had no names for them. My goodness, no names for anything. Yeah. And rejoice in light that, as it were a new thing. Isn't that cool? I love that. It is. I mean, there's there's not much good that comes of this, but that right. certainly is a good, isn't it? It, it uh, reminds it, it makes me, me a bit think of, of... Yeah, go ahead. You tell me. I want to hear on fairy you. stories? I yeah, guess, exactly. Stories. Renewal. Recovery. Yeah, Recovery, yeah, right. The, the idea of... Recovery of, of the... What is it? The, 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 the mundane. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Being able to appreciate the mundane again. Yeah. Yeah. It totally made me think of that. Yeah. That's awesome. And again, <laughs> we're, we're right there. It's great. We were both thinking of that. Yeah, um, yeah it's that just, wasn't even in our notes, folks. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I know we haven't talked about this before now, um, but yeah, it's just another thing of this this childlike state that she's reduced yeah. to. Um, yeah, can't imagine uh, being like this. No, um, and uh, and it's very sad. It is truly um, sad. And you wonder, you know, why does Tolkien have her stripping her clothes when she runs? And I think it's because that's even there's less. There, there, literally now, she has nothing at all. Not even. The clothes that she started with, she has nothing, nothing connecting her to her old life. Nothing connects her to, to her old that, life at all. 
nothing that somebody could even see and say, you know, oh, those oh, clothes look like, you know, Dora made a Doriath or something like right. that, or Dora yeah. Loman. Yeah. Yeah. That right. would be, cause that could be a key. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. My goodness. And Mablung, just uh, another discussion point from children of her. I've lied. I told you I was going to bring, uh, I'm just going to stop telling you that I'm not going to bring it up again. I love this one little line from there. Nonetheless, Mablung would not rest. And with a small company, he went into the wild and for three years wandered far from Arid Wethrin, even to the mouths of Sirion, seeking for sign or tidings of the lost. Three Boy, that, years. That hero score just went up. I mean, Didn't he really, that's he really, right. yeah. Yeah. He, he felt terrible. He was just, yeah. you know, and think I was like, hey, this is not your fault. It was a, re- it's a yeah. really, yeah. He goes out there for three yeah. years trying to hunt them down, trying to find them. Poor Mablung. I know. Poor, poor everybody. Poor, poor everybody. everybody. Really, in this part. <laughs> That's pretty um, From here on out, we just, just assume we're saying poor person X. Everybody, yeah. everyone we mentioned, oh, poor so-and-so. Yeah. Yeah. Did you notice, uh, I think we might have talked about this probably long before the podcast. This might have been mm-hmm. something we talked about. This uh, this reference to her running swifter than a deer um, I don't as know she's running away naked. Um, this, this passage uh, where it oh. says she... She ran swifter than a deer and tore off all her clothing as she ran until she was uh-huh. naked. Okay, yeah, uh, Cyrus. There, yes, exactly. The 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 interaction the that feel? yeah, right. When Turin first like when Turin's troubles, all of his troubles began basically when he right. had this fight with Cyrus in Thingol's hall at Thingol's table, and uh, you know Turin kind of comes to the table. He's been fighting. He comes to the table. He's all unkempt. He looks wild. And Cyrus taunts him. He says, right. uh, if, "If this is what the men of Hithlum look like, he says, do the women, do the women of Hithlum run like deer, clad only, only in their hair? In their hair, which of course she did. Which of course wow. is exactly what what wow. this woman of Hithlum does. You are right. That's, and I I don't know quite what to make of it, except that maybe there's a bit of, um, some weird bit of elvish foresight that Cyrus yeah. has here. Yeah. You know." Um, it certainly I, wasn't well, an accident. I mean, he, he certainly not. Yeah. The mention of the, the deer is, yeah. Yeah. Pretty clear. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I kind of, I kind of feel like it's just another, uh, pointer to, you know, this whole question of fate, fate. and free will that runs throughout this entire Boy, are we chapter. we going to have some fun with that or not? We're going <laughs> to we have definitely some fun. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil any of that, but I no. think that we're going to, you know, this, these little, these little yeah, things like little that. Little tidbits kind of like this to, that just jump mm-hmm. out and go, oh yeah, that ties yeah. in with that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That definitely shows a little bit of fate, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, which we'll get to, which we'll get to. But for now, uh, we want to find out what happens to this poor, you know, naked gal who has been running from the orcs and from everything else, and she doesn't know they're called orcs. Okay, this, <laughs> am I the only one who this makes me think of that moment in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when uh, Arthur triggers the improbability drive and a whale suddenly finds itself uh, way up oh, in orbit above the planet? That's goes, right. And you what get, is this? And you get, I don't have a word get the for whales this, this monologue, sensation yeah. of... I shall call it wind. Yeah. <laughs> what right. Is this, what is this large what is this thing, big thing that's coming, coming up, up to meet me? It's very I think round. I'll call it, land I'll call it ground. ground. Yeah, ground. That was it. <laughs> that was... That's right. Yeah, it looks round. I'll call it ground. I wonder if it that's will be my big... friend. <laughs> Splat. Splat. <laughs> um, yep. I did. I did kind of have that come to mind, and and sometimes that's a shame because <laughs> really I shouldn't be thinking of funny things like that at moments like this, but. Uh, hopefully no, that, that'll provide a laugh. We've talked before about how sometimes we have to really lighten the sometimes mood. Sometimes you just have to find uh, something to laugh at. Yeah, um, because this chapter doesn't have any of those moments at all. Right. 
This yeah. is all and, dark. And, all and, I, and I hope our listeners know by now that, you know, we, we have laughs with it because we, you know, we, we love this material. Oh, we have deeply. laughs with it because we just, we, we're just so happy to be talking about it that we're having a good time. It's mm-hmm. not, there is uh, that. Yeah. it's not uh, an indication of, uh, you know, Oh no, no we're not, we're not, we're not making fun the of the material. Or, no, yeah. not at all. We no. have, and, and I, I know our listeners understand this. We have a deep respect for the text. We have a, a deep yeah. respect for what Christopher Tolkien did in getting this book out and published uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, piles and piles of manuscripts. Um, we do this, we, we kind of bring in these other references uh, to, you know, to be funny, to, to make it entertaining. You're going to listen to two guys yeah. talk about Tolkien for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. Uh, yeah. You know, we got to do something. Um, you know, otherwise this is going to be the, um, the, the learn how to sleep in a hurry podcast. Yeah. Yeah, you you guys you guys can read these these nine pages in in, in a very short time. Yeah, but if you're listening to us talk about it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you're enjoying what we bring to it. Hopefully, so let's <laughs> find out what happens to this poor gal. Yep. But it was a great storm of thunder that came up from the south, and in terror she cast herself down upon the mound of Howth and Eleth, stopping her ears from the thunder. But the rain smote her and drenched her, and she lay like a wild beast that is dying. There Turambar found her, as he came to the crossings of Teglin, having heard rumor of orcs that roamed near. And seeing in a flare of lightning the body as it seemed of a slain maiden lying on the pa- on the, upon the mound of Finduilas, he was stricken to the heart. But the woodman lifted her up, and Turambar cast his cloak about her, and they took her to a lodge nearby and warmed her and gave her food. And as soon as she looked upon Turambar, she was comforted, for it seemed to her that she had found at last something that she had sought in her darkness, and she would not be parted from him. But when he asked her concerning her name and her kin and her misadventure, then she became troubled as a child that perceives that something is demanded but cannot understand what it may be, and she wept. Therefore Turambar said, Do not be troubled, the tale shall wait, but I will give you a name, and I will call you Niniel. Tear maiden. And at that name she shook her head, but said, Niniel. That was the first word she spoke after her darkness, and it remained her name among the woodmen ever after. Hmm. Niniel. Niniel. It kind of made me think of when Finduilas gave Turin a name that was awfully close to Turin. The name Thurin. Thurin. Not quite as on the nose, but... This keeps happening, and I, yeah, the the similarity of Niniel to Neonor, it, it, um, you know, and they even have similar meanings. Um, yeah, yeah, you you're know, right. Tear Maiden and, and Neonor means mourning. It, mm-hmm. I feel like this, <laughs> somebody's trying to jog their memories. I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think this is Iluvatar fate, kind of stepping in and you know, giving them a putting chance. these putting these words in their mouths, you know, to uh, in the hopes that maybe she'll hear it and say Niniel. Shake her head and then think, no, my name is Neonor. Right. Um, or the same thing with Turin. Um, yeah. Even even down to the name Turambar that he, he bears now, you know, you would think that she might find some similarity between that and her, her brother's name sure. if she remembered. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating how, how similar the names are. Yeah, it really is. And it makes for it makes for nice alliteration, which probably mm-hmm. was very convenient when Tolkien was writing this as alliterative verse. <laughs> That's true. He probably did have to come up with a, <laughs> a second name that was alliterative. Yeah. Did we <laughs> did we talk about? I have a random note here because I wasn't sure where else to fit it. Did we talk about uh, Turambar last time? Like the 
I, I know we talked about the meaning, time, but we talked about it at some point. Um, oh no, I know you, we talked about the meaning, but I don't the know meaning we of, talked the uh, meaning of master of fate. Um, right, right. Master Tour Ambar means master mm-hmm. of fate. Yeah, or yeah, master of doom. Um, interesting thing I found. Uh, I'll just put this out there, just because I thought it was really fascinating. Interesting thing I found in uh, history of Middle Earth was that at one point in the development of the mythology, Tolkien had given Morgoth the title Tarumbar. Hmm. Same exact consonants. The only thing is that the first A and the first U are switched. Um, And Tarumbar means king of the world. Um, I'm sorry. I just had a a Titanic moment in my head. Leo (laughs) DiCaprio. I'm Tarumbar. You see Morgoth standing at the prow of the ship with this. <laughs> I'm Tarumbar. <laughs> oh, man. That's terrible. That is terrible. That's a um, mashup that never should happen. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, but it, it's just, it was fascinating because I think there are a number of things that kind of show weird little parallels between mm-hmm. Turin and, and Morgoth. I think um, they were very clearly intended as, you know, literary foils for each other, you know, real yeah. sort of opposites. Similar sins, I think. Similar sins of pride. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, and going back to uh, Turambar, there is actually even a, a passage we talked about, I think, probably when we did the previous chapter, because uh, it's on page 197, where Morgoth calls himself Melkor, master of the fates of Arda, which very clearly <laughs> ah, parallels yes. Tarum, uh, Turambar, master, master of, doom, of doom, master of fates. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I don't really have much to say about it. I just wanted to throw it out there because that I thought it was fascinating. It? Yeah, I think it is, too. Um, I mean... I don't know that there's much there beyond what she said, but yeah, and, and certainly <laughs> so Tol- sorry. Tolkien only used that name <laughs> once in like all the twelve volumes yeah, of history. Yeah, so it's not Earth. one so that stuck, but not something that he stuck with. But just to think that he was even thinking about it for one moment, yeah, um, is neat. Master of the Fates versus Master of Fate mm-hmm. uh, for for Melkor calling it. Yeah, you're right. There are yeah. there are those little bit of parallels. Some parallels. I mean, they're not as strong as the Feanor Melkor parallels, which I think are true. That is very true. <laughs> hit you over the head. Well, and, and we'll talk. We'll talk a little bit more about that later too. You're right. I think just You're the, right. we the will. differences between Feanor is a, you know, the versus the sins Turin. of Feanor versus the sins of Turin. Yeah, I think that's an interesting discussion. So they take her back um, to the woodman. She's healed and she's taught to speak again. Mm-hmm. Uh, she ends up, of course, as to an infant. Yes, as to an infant. Yeah. She has no words. Yeah. She doesn't even know how to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, I I thought of this because. I think probably the first time I read this book, I wouldn't have comprehended this, but having small children, um, this idea that she became troubled as a child that perceives that something's demanded but can't understand what it may be, you get that, don't you? You understand what it's like when your kid maybe is two and you're trying to explain something to him and he knows that you want him to do something, but he can't grasp what it is you want him to do. Yeah. And, and they get how frustrated. frustrated they get, you know? Yeah. That inability yeah. to communicate, uh, either receptively or expressively. Uh, and in her case, obviously, she had both an inability to, <laughs> you know, she couldn't understand. Um, yeah. so she, if she didn't know how to speak the words, she didn't know what the words meant. So she's being right. asked a question, and she doesn't even know she's being asked a question. <laughs> right. <laughs> so can't, ima- yeah. can't imagine how frustrating it must no. be. I mean, can you imagine adults, you know, as a, as a child, you have, you have no words, you have no language. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, adults are treating you like you're an adult. Yeah. I mean, we treat kids like they're kids. So we understand and we don't, you know, right. ask them deep questions and, right. well, tell me about your kid and your misadventures just, and what's your name. Right. But ju- to just find this grown woman in, you know, yeah. 
on the hill and not know anything about her. Oh, and of you're course, just you're going to expect her, like, she can yeah. speak, you know. Yeah. Um, man. That's very interesting. It yeah. really is. But it made me think, oh, yeah, I kind of get what that's like now. Um, yeah. So she's taught to speak as an infant. She falls mm-hmm. in love with Turambar. Uh, mm-hmm. But Brandier loves her. And, yep. and, and I, you know, we've talked about friend zone <laughs> before. I'm going to bring in a children of Hurin line. Then Brandier grew to love her. And when she grew strong, she would lend him her arm for his lameness. And she called him her brother. Ooh. <laughs> it's worse than being Man. friend You're like a brother to me. Ouch. Oh, that's the worst. That, oh, man. That's worse than I can talk to you just like you're one of my girlfriends. Oh, that's terrible. That's, <laughs> that's terrible. Man. You're like a brother sting, to me. The sting of those words, man. Yeah. And and how, how really sad that is because her brother – is the one that should be like a brother to her. <laughs> that is so true. The irony of oh, that. The, the incredible layers upon layers of irony there. Wow. Um, oh, man. Yeah. So the guy who the guy who loves her, she yeah. thinks of like her brother. And the guy who's her brother, she loves. Yep. Oops. Mm. Oops. Man. Goodness. Well, um, that's if, poor Brandier. Isn't, isn't it? Poor Brandier. There's and a also, lot of pity for Brandier here. Yeah. And uh, also, until later. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but also, you know, notice already um, we're seeing some parallels to Gwyndor here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. With, with Turin and Finduilas. Yes. Um, and Brandier and you know, Gwyndor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So, so what happens here with uh, with that, that, that very much parallels Gwyndor? Can you take that next mm-hmm. paragraph for us? Yep. In that time, the woodmen were not troubled by the orcs. And Turambar not, and Turambar went not to war, and there was peace in Brethil. His heart turned to Niniel, and he asked her in marriage, but for that time she delayed in spite of her love. For Brandir foreboded he knew not what, and sought to restrain her, rather for her sake than his own or rivalry with Turambar. And he revealed to her that Turambar was Turin, son of Hurin, and though she knew not the name, a shadow fell upon her mind. Just like before, right? There was, yeah. uh, well, no, earlier it was the other way around. It was, there was something about him, right? She'd found at last something she'd sought. Yes. Well, now yes, there's the right. shadow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, Again, it's like. That, that's, 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 uh, be thinking about some, this. Something is in there scraping to get out of yes. her mind. You know? Yes, the truth. Something is locked away and it's trying to get out. The truth um, is crawling and scratching the walls mm-hmm. and going, help. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And so Brandir, just like Gwyndor, reveals Turambar's – I keep calling him Turambar. Is it Turambar or Turambar? I think it's Turambar just because there, there's two consonants after the, the penult. Yeah, yeah. So I think the stress is on the penult there. Instead of on the antepenult. S- somebody correct us if we're wrong there. but <laughs> I'll probably keep calling him Turambar. I don't know why. <laughs> I just um, – but yeah, I, so, I do. I, I kind of – yeah, I do. Yeah, we go I mean, back and forth. So, you know, but like Gwyndor, he reveals the true name of Turin mm-hmm. um, yep. to his love interests who he cares about. It's very yep. Gwyndorish. Very much parallel. Yeah. So he does some things later that Gwyndor I don't think would have done. Probably not. No. Um, <laughs> so, I'm but yeah, go- again, but here it just, it just falls upon deaf ears because she has no idea. I mean, she, wow. uh, and uh, yeah, we talked about it. She feels it. She feels something, but she doesn't know who Turin is. Those words have no meaning to her. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, they have some sort of subconscious meaning, but that's as close as we get. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and take the next paragraph. But when three years were passed since the sack of Nargothrond, 
Turambar asked Niniel again and vowed that now he would wed her or else go back to war in the wild. And Niniel took him with joy, and they were wedded at the midsummer, and the woodmen of Brethil made a great feast. But ere the end of the year, Glaurung sent orcs of his dominion against Brethil, and Turambar sat at home deedless, for he had promised to Niniel that he would go to battle only if their homes were assailed. But the woodmen were worsted, and Dorlas upbraided him that he would not aid the people that he had taken for his own. Then Turambar arose and brought forth again his black sword, and he gathered a great company of the men of Brethil, and they defeated the orcs utterly. But Glaurung heard tidings that the black sword was in Brethil, and he pondered what he heard, devising new evil. Because dragon. <laughs> I mean, really, that's just about you know. it. That's what I do. What, do. what do you do in your spare time? Well, I, I like to take walks on the beach and devise new evil. Count my gold, devise new evil, you know. Take naps. Yeah. Take naps. Um, but, and once again, you know, put away the black sword, put away the, the dragon helm of Dorloman. You know, if you want to remain kind of secret, then remain secret. Yeah. There's a little element of like the, you know, the, the gunslinger in the Western here, yeah. you know, like he, he tried to, it's like Tombstone or something, you know, Wyatt yeah. Earp just wanted to, just, just wanted want to, to retire, but then, right. but the bad guys come back, you know, and he's, he's got to take the guns down off the shelf again. Yeah. There's a, there's a cool heroism to it, but I, I see what you're saying. It's, yeah, it's yeah he's really trying to. But yeah, yeah. It just, you know, you were fighting with the, uh, the spear before you could still fight with the spear. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's true. There's other things you can fight with. Besides your black sword. Well, though, we'll find out that the black sword is probably the best weapon he could use against Glaron. No, that's um, true. Yeah. So, you know, the, there's a lot here that reminded me of Finduilas. You know, we, we talked about the Gwyndor connection, but um, there's this reminder of Finduilas in when he finds her, you know, going back to that. Um, oh, that's right. The way he found her the on way the mound. he found her on the mound. was buried and yeah. his heart was, was he stricken to the heart? Was stricken that, was to the heart or something along those lines. Yeah. It was, um, uh, great st- stopping her ears. He became. Yeah. yeah but imagine while you're looking heart. for that. Yeah, okay. There you go. Stricken to the heart. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just imagine, um, seeing the mound where, you know, someone you, you cared about was buried and then yeah. you see someone lying on top of Who it. Who looks a lot like her. Who looks know, a, a young lot maiden. like her. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you think you've seen, you'd think you've seen a ghost for a split second, you know? Yeah. And he has, I think this is another interesting time because we see, um, you know, when he brings her back, um, you know, he puts, he's, he puts the, um, he puts his cloak on her. Uh, they warm her up, they give her food, all this. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I know we're kind of going back a, a couple paragraphs, but I meant to bring this up then. We see his compassion again, his pity. You know, he yeah. has this. There's there's part of Turin that's so that still has this really good, compassionate and and, and side of yeah. of, of empathy, um, yeah. which is why He's, it's so surprising that he can still make such foolish decisions. He makes such bad decisions. That are selfish, right? Because he does have he does have good motivations a lot of the sometimes, time. Sometimes, yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes he has bad motivations, but sometimes <laughs> he does have good ones, and and there, he does have some very positive traits. You know. Yeah. He, he is compassionate. He does have a strong sense of justice, yeah. um, as we'll talk as, about later. And as we'll see later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's very interesting. I, you know, it it, it occurs to me, again, I, I, I'm still stuck by this, this, 
stuck on this concept of how childlike she is um, yeah. in this state. And um, there is something here about just his his persistence in asking her to marry him. Yeah. <laughs> and I know she's she is a grown woman. She's learned to speak again. But it, yeah. it, there is something something a little off putting to me about a little, that. A little and oddly it, pushy. Yeah. It, yeah. A little a little pushy and a little creepy when you consider that, you know, wow. you found this woman in the wild naked and, you know, unable yeah. to speak, Near, yeah. you know, um, you should probably find out more about her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> trust me. Trust me. Tori, <laughs> yeah. and you need to find Dude, out a little really more, about, out about, more her. about her or at least find a Han Solo to step in and, and win her away <laughs> before you kiss her again. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, um, goodness. But you know, it's I don't know. There's just a there's just a weird How creepiness. How did I know Luke and Leia were going to come up? And the, the, oh, of the course they kiss. they had that to. Was, yeah, they had to. I've been waiting twenty one chapters for that. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, well, they but, did a little uh, bit more than kiss because in the spring of the year after, Niniel yeah. conceived. Yep. So we do need to to be you know keep we're not, we're gonna we're not gonna read that whole paragraph. But I did want to touch on that point plus this next one. This is a telling line. Turambar sent out scouts far afield, for now he ordered things as he would, and few gave heed to Brandir. Does this oh, sound you're not familiar? That, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's Nargothrond all over again, All isn't it? over again, and, and he ends up in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have to say, as, as your reading is about to tell us, he does, he, he does take some of that wisdom into account, doesn't he? Hmm. He does, yeah. And I'll, and I'll, go, I'll go read yeah. that. They sought, therefore, the counsel of Turambar, and he counseled them that it was vain to go against Glaurung with all their force, for only by cunning and good fortune could they defeat him. He offered, therefore, himself to seek the dragon on the borders of the land, and bade the rest of the people to remain at Ethelbrandir, but to prepare for flight. For if Glaurung had the victory, he would come first to the woodmen's homes to destroy them, and they could not hope to withstand him. But if they then scattered far and wide, then many might escape, for Glaurung would not take up his dwelling in Brethil and would return soon to Nargothrond. Mm. Then Turambar asked for companions willing to aid him in his peril. And Dorlas stood forth, but no others. Therefore Dorlas upbraided the people and spoke scorn of Brandir, who could not play the part of the heir of the house of Haleth. And Brandir was shamed before his people and was bitter at heart. But Hunthor, kinsman of Brandir, asked his leave to go in his stead. Then Turambar said farewell to Niniel, and she was filled with fear and foreboding, and their parting was sorrowful. Mm. But Turambar set out with his two companions and went to Nengirith. Yeah. Well, Dorlis is yeah. good at upbraiding. Uh, this he's, is the second time he's twice, upbraided. Twice yeah. in two pages that First he's upbraided he upbraids somebody. upbraids Turin, and now he's upbraiding the yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, Dorlis. He's call, you know, he's calling people on stuff that they need to be called on. I'll give him that. Yeah, but yeah, you know, he does his later. The, his later the, actions kind of yeah, kind of yeah. kind of lose me. <laughs> they they kind of do. And and in the novel, he's a little bit you know the full length version. He's he's a little bit nastier. Um, yeah. About Brandier, I mean, it, there's there's he really kind of goes over the top uh, in mm. in criticizing Brandier, who's lame from birth. I mean, he's he's got right. a birth defect that he. He, he can't be the warrior leader that um, right. you know that Turin would be, for instance. It's interesting um, that you bring that up because I I was just thinking about you know the parallels to Nargothrond and you know with Orodreth we saw a weak leader, 
Right. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's a per, he's an elf, you know, he should have been able to fight. Um, but he was just a weak leader. Uh, Brandier is, um, he makes mistakes certainly, but his, his weakness is physical. Uh, it's, um, I don't know what to make of it, but it's just an interesting <laughs> contrast between between him and Ordreth. You know, I mean, there are times when Brandir, I think, strikes me as um, he he actually is somebody who could be a good leader, um, but uh, then there are times where he doesn't. <laughs> so <laughs> let's not go too far down that road. But um, man, there just are no good guys in this chapter, are there? Except Mablung. No, yeah, Mablung's about the only one. I mean, in terms of like really, truly, purely good. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm looking up the Dorla stuff in Children of Horan, and and he, um, yeah, it, it's it, it's it's pretty. He's bad. a lot. He's a lot nastier. And, he really and as we is. see, Dorlas is really he's just a big talker. You know, he is. I'll go with you, Lord, for I would ever go forward rather than wait for a foe. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah, we'll uh, see about that. <laughs> you know, he um, he talks about the the House of Halleth, you know, being put to shame, uh, and so you know, Brandier's scorn yeah. and, and bitter um but yeah i i hunter actually has some line has a line in, in children of horn that's worth saying he says you do evilly doorless to speak thus to the shame of your lord whose limbs by ill hazard cannot do as his heart would beware lest the contrary be seen in you at some turn Ooh, interesting <laughs> and, foreshadowing isn't it and um, how can it be said that his counsels were vain when they were never taken you right. his liege have ever set them at naught I say to you that Glauron comes now to us, as to Nargothrond before, because our deeds have betrayed us, as he feared. Hmm. But since this woe is now come, with your leave, son of Handir, I will go on behalf of Halas House. Hmm. So, okay. you know, major respect there to yeah. uh, to, Hunthor. Uh, to Hunthor. Yeah, I, I felt like there. I felt like I, I, I thought I knew Hunthor better than I get to know him in this chapter, and it must, yeah, yeah it's, it's, the it's from that. It's, it's from, from that that I'm the full version, or the Narn. Um, the Narn goes into the yeah. The Narn is very similar to that. Um, there's there's another situation, you know. I, we see a little bit. Of, we get some. I think there's sympathy for Brandier. The the novel evokes sympathy mm-hmm. for Brandier. It does. And and I do. That's kind of why I, I think I think Brandier is somebody who could have been a good leader, maybe in different circumstances. He was desperately trying to be a good leader. He, he really just, was. He he did try. He had yeah, physical limitations. He exactly. wasn't exactly. He wasn't an Orodreth who was held back by his own. Uh, yeah. You his know, hesitancy or his, his hesitancy, his failure to yeah, his failure to yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Brandy really wanted to do things and he, yeah. man, he tries, he, you know, he does, he risks, he risks physical harm. He, you know, yes, well, he we'll does. see it in just a we'll moment, see. you know, <laughs> not too long from now that he does. Yeah. yeah. There is something to be, it, you're right. It, we lose a little bit in this shortened version, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, of our sympathy for Brandier, even the, the action at the end that Brandier takes, that's, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. deeply wrong. Kind, kind of where we lose him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems a little more justifiable in the novel version. Still not right, mm-hmm. but maybe it goes from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. I don't know. Um, it, it, it seems if a little it, bit more If it's okay. the one we're thinking of, I, I might have some thoughts on that. Okay. Yeah. But, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll chat about that one. Um, I think that's actually where I had intended to bring in some more stuff from Children of Hurin. <laughs> the, we the just can't stop thought, ourselves. Yeah, we well, it was can't. the part where I thought, well, golly, I guess I'll bring in two sections from Children of Horan. Never mind. I think I brought in seven. But, you know, Every, yeah. we'll see. Two 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 sections per passage that we read from the Apparently. Silver <laughs> <laughs> So we also get the parting of Turambar and Ninio. Uh, yeah. And it's sorrowful, and she's filled with fear and foreboding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So she knows it's not going to end well. No, no. And probably not quite how she thinks, but. (laughs) And she can't wait much longer. So she ends up, uh, she ends up leading with a, with a great company. Um, Mm -hmm. Brandier basically says, fine. Here, here we see her again. Again. Yeah. Again, I just see this kind of, this just more of this rashness. It is. Um, you know, the fearlessness that's not a good kind of fearlessness. Yeah. Um, not like not knowing when to, it doesn't act to stay wisdom. home and be safe. Yeah. 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 I mean, she's pregnant. Let's keep that in mind. That's true. Um, she has, she really probably shouldn't be, you know. And she's going against her husband's be... wishes, not only with her own life, but with the lives of all these other people she's leading there. Remember, true. he told yeah. them, you guys stay here. And yeah. if Glauron comes your way, scatter so that more, more of you can live. Yeah. You know, it, Going with three guys, going with a hundred guys is not going to matter. You know, we're going to, we're probably going to die in doing what we're doing, but only right. a small group of us can succeed. Uh, right. There's no point in having a bunch of you come. So stay where you're at. And she ends up not staying. And she, she doesn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, Brandier tries Very to true. talk her out of it. Uh, she did. She doesn't listen. He mm-hmm. renounces his lordship. We're done. Um, you know, yeah. he, he puts on a sword and falls, you know, and follows after her, but he can't follow very quickly. So he falls behind. Um mm-hmm. Which is sad. So we. That's very sad. Yeah. It is. You feel, you know, again, very badly for him. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very sad. Um, We get a description here of kind of this this location of Nengirith. It's a river gorge. Um, Turin thinks that, okay, Glaring's going to have to pass over the gorge. So his idea, and then we get that in description uh, in these paragraphs here, is that they're going to get down into the ravine, go over the mm-hmm. river, and and climb up underneath the dragon because, of mm-hmm. course, that's where dragons are vulnerable. It's um, on their belly. Yep, yep. But we see that the heart of Dorlis failed when they came to Taglin. <laughs> so he didn't attempt the crossing but drew back. We come to that later uh, more. There's um, where Mr. All Talk. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dorlos the Upbraider is, Dor- is unmanned. Dorlos the Upbraider. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Nathan the Wronged, Dorlos the Upbraider. Dorlos the <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, goodness. So uh, Turambar and Hunthor continue. Um, Dragon wakes up and and starts mm-hmm. to uh, to come across. Um, sadly, as they're climbing Boy, this up is- the br- yeah, this is a great passage. I know we're not going to read it, I know. but I mean, just this, you know, oh, cast his forward part across the chasm Can and you began to draw this humongous his humongous dragon, humongous dragon worm, worm, just throwing himself across this chasm, and just yeah, drawing his bulk after. You get there's such a sense of just massive. very slow motion. This massive yeah. creature just pulling himself across, and just oh. the, the earth shaking and the trees. I mean, you know, yeah. The, we do find in the novel version that he burns the trees on the other side first. He, he casts, you know, he okay. does his dragon thing yeah. and, and wipes right. out all the trees so there's a landing spot. Okay. Um, and then he go, he jumps over. So uh, Turambar and, and Hunter are climbing up. They're trying to get there. Hunter is killed by a rock that comes down, uh, hits him on the head and puts him in the river. I do yeah. love that little line that he gets. So he ended of the house of Haleth, not the least Not valiant. the least valiant. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. And he's um, a guy we know nothing about. I know, very, uh, just nothing at all other than the but, fact that he comes just, to the defense of his lord and yeah. kinsman. And just those little bits you know about him, uh, man. Well, he's obviously got you want to know more. You yeah, know? absolutely. Because Dorlis the upbraider. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, you could tell we're kind of moving at a fast pace. And that's because, of course, we're not reading 
every word, but, um, uh, you know, we want to leave enough room at the end to discuss some really big topics. So we're, we're moving through this fairly quickly, but hopefully we're not moving too fast for you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take the next, um, oh, the next uh, three paragraphs here. So okay. here we go. This is the, the critical moment. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is the good stuff. Then Turambar summoned all his will and courage and climbed the cliff alone and came beneath the dragon. Then he drew Gurthang, and with all the might of his arm and of his hate, he thrust it into the soft belly of the worm, even up to the hilts. But when Glaurung felt his death pang, he screamed, and in his dreadful throw he heaved up his bulk and hurled himself across the chasm, and there lay lashing and coiling in his agony. And he set all in a blaze about him, and beat all to ruin, until at last his fires died, and he lay still. Now Gurthang had been wrested from Turambar's hand in the throw of Glaurung, and it clave to the belly of the dragon. Turambar therefore crossed the water once more, desiring to recover his sword and to look upon his foe. And he found him stretched at his length and rolled upon one side, and the hilts of Gurthang stood in his belly. Then Turambar seized the hilts and set his foot upon the belly and cried in mockery of the dragon and his words at Nargothrond, Hail, worm of Morgoth! Well met again! Die now, and the darkness have thee! Thus is Turin, son of Hurin, avenged! Then he wrenched out the sword, but a spout of black blood followed it, and fell on his hand, and the venom burned it. And thereupon Glaurung opened his eyes, and looked upon Turimbar with such malice that it smote him as a blow. And by that stroke and the anguish of the venom, he fell into a dark swoon and lay as one dead, and his sword was beneath him. Man. Heroic moment. I'm, this is the very, heroic moment. Very heroic moment, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll come back to this one later on. Boy, you're um, not kidding. But it's, oh yeah, such this a great is what, moment. I mean, this, makes, this is what puts him in the pantheon of Absolutely. Of the heroes right yeah. here, the slaying yeah. of Glaurung. Yeah, right, exactly. This it's, is no joke. It's, it's something significant enough yeah. to not overlook his other deeds, but remember him as uh, yeah. a, a great hero with a footnote. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, um, this is a significant Great. thing. I mean, this is the first dragon. Yeah. This is the first dragon and slaying. And the father of all dragons. And this is him the in prime, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is one man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess yeah. it is frequently one man who ends up killing the dragon, but, you know, still one man fighting alone, standing alone um, in, you know, in melee combat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know, mean this, is, this is not, this isn't you know, barred with an arrow. Black arrow. You know? No, this yeah. is standing this underneath is, with the, yeah. the dragon with stench, the stench and, and the rumbling and, and the fire and the heat and, oh. and, and summoning your courage and, and driving your sword upward into his belly. Mm. What a moment. This is powerful. This is. This is. And I will admit this would be a moment that I would be looking forward to if they, if they were to make a movie. I don't want them to. <laughs> I know we keep saying that. I don't want them to. I really don't. But I'd yeah. still go see it. And this would be a, <laughs> a could be a pretty darn good moment. <laughs> of course we would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and we would and mock all the And we'd say it was just for podcast research. But no. 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 We're, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to go to a midnight showing in our 40s just because of podcast no. research. No. But we would, we would end up, of course, mocking it you know, over and over yeah. again for its shortcomings. But 
yeah, this would be quite the cinematic moment. Uh, Glaurung just setting ablaze everything on the other side of the river. Everything on the other side. Amazing. I, it's interesting that the strategy of his approach is so radically different from his usual preferences, isn't it? He wants the open hides. battle, he, but he not lies, this time. He lies in wait, and he yeah. hides. He's learned he something. Stealth. That is true. Yeah. That's a good point. I never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's still sword and Tarj, minus the Tarj. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not like he's fighting from the forest with a bow, but he's not doing the open battle, which got him into trouble right. before. So right. there is that. I mean, he Although really he does still has to look, some. He still has to look on his foe before the end, though, ding, doesn't ding, he? Ding, ding, ding. I was going there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What there? What is the point? Isn't the point here to kill Glaurung and not to gloat over Not Glaurung? to mock him and gloat, yeah. Don't you know better by now? Don't you know the last time he looked at you that you were basically frozen, paralyzed? That this yeah. was, you know, he, he he rolled a natural 20 and you were stuck for hours <laughs> yeah. while Fendulas walked by screaming your name? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, you know, you know, roll your, you know, know. what's your saving throw against dragon What's your spell, saving right? throw against dragon, uh, <laughs> dragon spells? Um, Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, because know. either, either Glaurung's already dead and you're mocking a corpse, which is kind of pointless. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he's alive, in which case he'll hear you. You're but still, you're still at risk. You're in you, danger, you still, right? Yeah, exactly. This would be where you'd think a little bit more wisdom would have been handy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate. Well, and it, it it reveals how much this is for how much he's doing this for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um. It's it's a great deed that he does. He kills Glaurung, oh, yeah, no father of dragons, and he's remembered as a hero for it. But he doesn't do it to strike a great blow for the Adine. Uh, you know, yeah. he does it because he has a personal vendetta yeah. against the dragon. Um, and he does it, he says, for vengeance. Yeah. He, you know, thus is Turin, son of Hurin, avenged. avenged. Um, so it, he's, doing the, he's doing the right thing, you know, I think somewhat for the wrong reasons. And, um, and I think that's important. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm having a Galaxy Quest moment. Oh, no. What, did we, what happened? Avenged. Oh, by Grabthar's hammer, <laughs> by the sons of Warvan, you shall <laughs> be avenged. Oh, I'm so sorry. I could not. Oh, man. <laughs> I didn't catch that when I was reading it, but avenged just does That's something great. to me and, and brings back <laughs> Alan Rickman, another Alan another Rickman, who, another, who must say rest, rest in, peace, in peace, Alan Rickman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- this was, this is, man, he weird. would have been, he's a little old, but he would have been a great Turin in his youth. Oh, wouldn't he? In his, in his Thank diehard you. days. Yeah. 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 Dar- a, or, a little, um, a little skinny, a little, um, you know, kind of, he could have bulked up a little bit. He would have needed to bulk up to be Turin. Yeah. But yeah. Kind of that, just with that slight arrogance and yeah. swagger that he had. Yeah. With the, I'm thinking of him in, uh. And this wasn't a very good movie, but the uh, the Robin Hood movie where he played. Uh, oh golly! No, that wasn't a very good movie. But <laughs> yeah, you're right. All. The sheriff but of Nottingham. He was a cool sheriff of Nottingham. He was an excellent sheriff. <laughs> and at least his British accent stayed consistent, unlike Kevin Costner. <laughs> unlike Robin Hood. Oh Kevin my Costner. goodness, though. <laughs> Robin Costner. <laughs> you know, he did yeah. Oh boy, that was bad. Um, yeah. Just why mock? Why do this? But I yeah. get it. You know, it's this is a personal thing. Um, but that's okay because Glaurung's going to make it personal now too. <laughs> oh yes, he is. So, um, so Glaurung screams, and everybody, you know, thinks that uh, the dragon is is victorious. I mean, you know, he's just destroying everything. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Niniel sits and, and and kind of freezes. She locks up. 
So what happens at that point? Even so. Oh, sorry. Yes. (laughs) I picked it up. (laughs) For once. For once, I picked up on the subtle segue. I can't believe I did that to you. I'm so sorry, my friend. Oh, all right. I'm going to let you no, go that's all right. do that again. Because usually I'm like, what do you want me to read now? Am yeah, to, that's kind of what I was waiting for. Am I supposed for. to read now? <laughs> no, we're supposed to all talk right. about uh, talk about siege engines. Talk about siege warfare. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, uh, here we go. Next paragraph. There you go. Even so, Brandir found her. For he came to Nengirath at last, limping wearily. And when he heard that the dragon had crossed the river and had beaten down his foes, his heart yearned towards Niniel in pity. Hmm. Yet he thought also, Turambar is dead, but Niniel lives. Now it may be that she will come with me, and I will lead her away, and so we shall escape from the dragon together. After a while, therefore, he stood by Niniel, and he said, Come, it is time to go. If you will, I will lead you. And he took her hand, and she arose silently and followed him and in the darkness none saw them go. But as they went down the path to the crossings, the moon rose and cast a gray light on the land. And Niniel said, Is this the way? And Brandir answered that he knew no way, save to flee as they might from Glaurung and escape into the wild. But Niniel said, The black sword was my beloved and my husband. To seek him only do I go. What else could you think? and she sped on before him. Thus she came towards the crossings of Taglin, and beheld how the Neleth in the white moonlight, and great dread came on her. Great dread. Great dread. For good reason. Great dread for good reason. Um, there's a, yeah? Yeah. We're going to see some more here in a little bit. Um, I wanted to touch, to touch briefly on Brandier's discovery of her and kind of his motivation it does seem like he just, you know, he wants to protect her. He's like, okay, well, now, you know, she's got nobody to protect her. I, there's, there's less of, ooh, my rival is dead, and more of, she's got nobody now. And she's going to be, you know, she's pregnant. Um, I, I, let me, I'll rescue her. Obviously, rescuing her will then endear her to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's his, that's his thought process here is, you know, the, the pity. Uh, of you know her maybe, now being without her her husband maybe maybe so I I'd like to think so but I don't know I I always I'm trying to I give the benefit of the doubt <laughs> I always see a little bit of opportunism here oh yeah you know? yeah I mean this you know this is her her husband and father of her child that you know that she assumes is dead and yeah first thing is now may now maybe that she, now it may be that she will come with me right um, of course and, what I want to tell him is it's too soon dude. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah. This is not you don't hit on the time. widow at the funeral, man. Right. <laughs> right. That just ain't right. You got to give her some time. <laughs> exactly. Some time. Golly, uh, that, that, man. Yeah, that, not that's 5 not, minutes. I mean, that's not enough. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not even at the funeral. This is the scene of this the accident. Is, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh so, my god. I don't goodness. know. I, it's yeah, it's uh I want to think the best. I definitely think he he does want to rescue. He really does genuinely care about her. He does. It's yeah. not he loves. He's her. not just trying to. Yeah, he's not just trying to hone in on his rival's territory. Right. But um, it's just. Um, of course, she loves him too, he, like a brother. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah. 
that's right. I guess now's my chance to get out of the friend zone, right? Yeah, now. exactly. Well, sweet. or at least graduate from brother zone. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, goodness. I'd, I'd take friend zone after that, really. It's, <laughs> at least that has, I've got a shot still. Yeah. Uh, well, so what does she see? Um, I'm going to go ahead and take, starting in the next paragraph, uh, partway in that first line here. She came to the ruin of Glaurung, nigh the brink of Cabin and Arras. There she saw the dragon lying, but she heeded him not, for a man lay beside him, and she ran to Turambar and called his name in vain. Then finding that his hand was burned, she washed it with tears and bound it about with a strip of her raiment, and she kissed him and cried on him again to awake. Thereat Glaurung stirred for the last time ere he died, and he spoke with his last breath, saying, Hail, Nienor, daughter of Urin, we meet again ere the end. I give thee joy that thou hast found thy brother at last, and now thou shalt know him, a stabber in the dark, Treacherous to foes, faithless to friends, and a curse unto his kin, Turin, son of Hurin. But the worst of all his deeds thou shalt feel in thyself. Then Glaurung died, and the veil of his malice was taken from her, and she remembered all the days of her life. Looking down upon Turin, she cried, Farewell, O twice beloved. Ah, Turin, Turambar, Turunambartanen, Master of doom by doom mastered, O happy to be dead. Then Brandir, who had heard all, standing stricken upon the edge of ruin, hastened towards her. But she ran from him, distraught with horror and anguish, and coming to the brink of Kabad and Aras, she cast herself over and was lost in the wild water. Wow, the hits <laughs> just keep coming. That's, I mean, yeah, this that's, is. Oh, this is. I think this might be the worst one for me it is, <laughs> in the chapter. It is. Yeah, um, Neonor is Neonor is the closest thing to an innocent victim. I think this story has. Yeah, we're going to get to more of that as we discuss yeah. the moral culpability and the curse and yeah. all that. But she definitely is the closest thing you get to an innocent bystander. You're right, mm-hmm. and it is heartbreaking that mm-hmm. moment where she remembered all the days of her life, mm-hmm. they all come back to her. Oh, just that pain. I, I can't even, I can't even fathom. You, you, yo, no, you can't. I mean, the overwhelming emotions yeah. of, of sorrow and repent, you know, remorse and grief mm-hmm. and is horror ew, and anguish. Yeah. Distraught with horror and anguish. Yeah. Is you an emotion? Cause you, I mean, yeah. that, that, that would, and yet, at the same time, you you'd remember that you loved him as right as somebody a else, too. as a person different yeah. than yeah. You you weren't you. You were you right. were Niniel, not Neonor at that point. You didn't you didn't know, and so you right. loved him in both of these ways. And mm-hmm. and yet, of course, you know how deeply wrong that is. And and then she mm-hmm. horror and anguish and and uh, yeah. One can hardly the worst, blame her. The worst of all his deeds thou shalt feel in thyself. Uh, 
that's um yeah mm. yeah just it's heartbreaking it, it, it just is. really is and this is why i think folks we warned you from the very beginning that this was a dark, deeply dark chapter this is uh, yeah. for for first time readers uh this is a story that just you know it it, it punches you in the stomach and then when you mm-hmm. think it's done it punches you in the face it punches you again yeah, again again over again and over yeah um her terrible. last words to her last words to Turin though um, um yeah she remember the wisdom she had before the spell yeah and yeah. she speaks with that wisdom again um you know the master of doom by doom Aturin, Turambar, Turin Ambartan, and master of doom by doom mastered yeah um <laughs> there's there's this thing again uh, we'll talk a little bit about um the the notion of this is a tragedy later on um, like a Greek tragedy, and you know, there's always this this thing in in the the classic Greek tragedies where the hero always ends up doing the opposite of what they intend, um, and 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 she really just spells that right out for us. Yeah. You spent your he spent his whole life trying to master his doom, and yeah. he has been mastered by it. Oh, just and and, and yeah, what do you do? Like you said, dead. what do you do at that point? You know, yeah. what can she do at that point? You're right. Continuing on with life is, I, I, I mean, I. It's a it's a different act than what what we'll see yeah. coming up, but it's still, um, very sorrowful. Yeah, yeah. Brander wants to do the same, but he he can't do it. He doesn't. He can't find the courage to to leap in. Yeah, um, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do get, and we're not going to read that little intervening paragraph. But we do get this beautiful new name. You know, we've talked about this before with the how then and. The Houth and Eleth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this gets yeah. a new beautiful name, the Kabed Nairamarth. Kabed Nairamarth. The Leap, leap of, of Dreadful, dreadful doom. doom. Which is, it's a beautiful name in Cinderin, not such a beautiful name in the common tongue. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, but but so now Brandir, since he can't uh, jump into the river, what does he end up doing? I will read. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. But, <laughs> But Brandir made his way back to Nengirith to bring tidings to the people. And he met Dorlas in the woods and slew him, the first blood that ever he had spilled, and the last. And he came to Nengirith, and men cried to him, Have you seen her? For Niniel is gone. And he answered, Niniel is gone forever. The dragon is dead, and Turambar is dead, and those tidings are good. The people murmured at these words, saying that he was crazed. But Brandir said, Hear me to the end. Niniel, the beloved, is also dead. She cast herself into Taglin, desiring life no more. For she learned that she was none other than Nienor, daughter of Hurin of Dorloman, ere her forgetfulness came upon her. And that Turambar was her brother, Turin, son of Hurin. Mm. Goodness. <sighs> and then that's when the people collectively went, You... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> their eyes get all big, their jaws drop. Yeah. Uh, whoa, that's that's a bad thing. Didn't um, see that coming. No, didn't see that coming. You're right. Uh, speaking of didn't see it Dor- coming, poor Dorlis. Dorlis. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a yeah. this is where I, I wanted to bring in a, a little bit from Children of Horan again. There's a really nasty little confrontation between Brandir and Dorlis. Um Basically, Brandir's asking Dorlis for information, and Dorlis doesn't know. And and Brandir realizes that Dorlis had deserted his companions in fear, and he shames him. And he he says what I think is truth. 
He says, you are the begetter of our woes, egging on the black sword, bringing the dragon upon us, putting mm-hmm. me to scorn, drawing Hunthor to his death, and then you flee to skulk in the woods. So, yeah, there's there's some good yeah. conversation there. He realizes that if, if Doris had come out of hiding sooner and given tidings to Niniel or to Neonor, she wouldn't have seen the dragon and learned the truth about Turin. Oh, yeah, yeah. She would have, she would have found, you know, yeah. So, um, you would have just, yeah. If you would have just come, if you had not been if, such a coward. Right. You would have come out. Niniel would have seen yeah. you. I'm Neonor. I keep calling her Niniel, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, she would have, you would have been able to tell her what's going on and she mm-hmm. wouldn't have ended up running into the dragon and, and having him say, oh, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Neonor, Turin, Turin, Neonor. <laughs> oh, you know each other already. I believe you know each other. Biblically. <laughs> you have known each other. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, Dorlis makes ready to punch Brandir, which is, you know, okay, that's, I get it. Dorlis doesn't like Brandir. He's going to knock him out. Brandir mm-hmm. pulls a sword and kills him. Okay, so it's a bit more of a, an act of self-defense there. Well, well, not against a punch, I guess. Against a punch, yeah. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't call it that. And it, it, it's basically Dorless is about to, you know, cold cock him, and the next thing you know, he's got a sword in him. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the other thing I thought of with this though, because uh, I, I didn't go back and um, reread the Children of Her, and I'm glad you did. Um, you know, I mean, remember, Brandir is still Dorless's lord. I mean, oh he's, yeah, yeah, he's, this is his yeah. king, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, his lord, right. Um, and Dorlas is technically a deserter. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. so, uh, not Could technically, he was a deserter. This. He was yeah, absolutely exactly. a deserter. Yeah. And I think it's just because, you know, we, we, we recently had that discussion with Simon Tolkien and, you know, read that book oh, and there's, yeah. um, you know, oh, there's, goodness, there's stuff in that thing. about, yeah, seeing men get executed for desertion or for cowardice. Yeah. Um, and this is something that Tolkien would have seen before. Oh, um, so there's that aspect of it too. I, I I still don't think Brandier's a good guy for no, this. I no, think no, it's no. it's 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 more than he needed to do. But um, you it's know, way for, more. To, and he did it out of anger because of he what did do it out of anger. That's true. Yeah. He he didn't do it out of he didn't do it out of a, out of a desire to see justice done. That's no, true. and it wasn't self defense either. I mean, a punch. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's never bring a sword. Never bring a fist to a sword <laughs> never, fight. Never bring a fist to a sword fight. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Dorlas has done so much talking in his life. Maybe he's yeah. talked up fists. Talked himself up so much <laughs> that my fists are deadly weapons. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. No. You. No. You're right. It, it really is not at all an act of self defense. I. I think you know, in in a certain regard, you know, Dorlas had it coming. But um. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely. that's okay. Brander's got something coming too. So we'll get to. Boy, that. does he. Um. In fact, I, get, I think we'll get to that next. Turin wakes up, sees that he's got a, a you know, some. Bactine and a Band-Aid on his hand. Um, <laughs> and so he's like, well, wait a minute. Who did this? So did he's, this? he's calling out. And uh, long story short, he ends up finding his way uh, back home. And when the people saw him, they drew back in fear, thinking that it was his unquiet spirit. And he said, nay, be glad, for the dragon is dead and I live. But wherefore have you scorned my counsel and come into peril? And where is Niniel? For her I would see. And surely you did not bring her from her home. Then Brandir told him that it was so, and Ninio was dead. But the wife of Dorlis cried out, Nay, Lord, he is crazed, for he came here saying that you were dead, and he called it good tidings, but you live. Then Turambar was wrathful, and believed that all Brandir said or did was done in malice towards himself and Ninio, begrudging their love. And he spoke evilly to Brandir, calling him Clubfoot. Then Brandir reported all that he had heard, and named Ninio Neonor, 
daughter of Hurin. And he cried out upon Turimbar with the last words of Glaurung, that he was a curse unto his kin and to all that harbored him. Then Turimbar fell into a fury, for in those words he heard the feet of his doom overtaking him. And he charged Brandir with leading Niniel to her death and publishing with delight the lies of Glaurung, if indeed he devised them not himself. Then he cursed Brandir and slew him, and he fled from the people into the woods. Mm-hmm. So once again, he kills somebody and then runs away. Yeah. Um, and there is there is no defending this kill. No. I mean, no. this is a pure cold blood murder. Yeah. Yeah. This is just anger. Mm-hmm. It's it's even worse in the novel. Uh, I don't have that. I didn't. I, I didn't prep anything on that, but I just recall that there was. It got really nasty uh, between the mm-hmm. two of them. And Brandier too. I mean, Brandier yeah. was not an innocent player here. He, right, you know, was trying to save the worst of it. But when Turin started calling him Clubfoot, you know, he, yeah. all, the gloves were off. You know, yeah. Um, it, that's that always is. Uh, this Clubfoot is interesting to me. Um, there's a character that's not in the chapter in the Silmarillion, but that appears in the novel, The Children of Hurin. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember um, Sador? Turin's oh, yeah, childhood yeah. friend. Yeah. And, and his, called, yeah. Love that character. Uh, yeah. He was, uh, what was he? He was just sort of a, one of the a, hands around yeah, the house in Dor yeah. Um, and, uh, he, and he was uh, an old, a very, a very old man. If I remember, he correctly. was, he was an older guy. Yeah. And he, I think he walked with a limp. Right. And, uh, yes, and young did. Turin gave him the nickname Labadal, which yeah. meant hop a foot. Yeah. Um, which isn't exactly it, a compliment, but I guess from a kid, you mm, wouldn't, Take it right. Being, it was you know, it was a it was kind of a loving jest yeah, as a kid. Yeah. You know, it was it, they were really good friends. They were you know they were very close. Um, and uh, in some ways, I think Sador was sort of a almost a a father figure to him since his father yeah. wasn't around. I agree. Um, and uh, I don't know. This is one of those things. I, I'm. It's unfortunate that we don't see Sador Labadal in the chapter here because we've yeah. seen so much of the the sort of the. The cyclical nature of this story, how these mm-hmm. little things um, keep coming up throughout Turin's life. And and here's another one, you know, uh, a, a nickname that he would have used for someone in love when he was a child. He's now using in hate As and in an anger. Insult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, before he kills someone. And you're right about his anger. Um, you know, we get we get this in the in the novel version that, you know, after he finds out after um, uh, Brandier tells him that Neonor was her name, not Niniel. Uh, in horror and fury, his heart would not receive these words. As a beast hurt to death that will wound ere it dies, all that are near it. So he he was going to lash out. Um, mm. And, you know, and, and Brander just, you know, basically tells him this. I was there. The dragon said this. Yeah. Um, and and he, it's funny because Brander's like, well, you know, they say that men will speak true on their deathbed. Apparently a dragon does it, too, because you are a curse unto your kin. And so what does Turin say? Do men speak true before death? Then speak it now quickly. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because, yeah, uh, Brandier knows. And I have to say, I, there's, a, there's a moment of bravery for Brandier. Oh, yeah. It says that Standing Brandier, up to Turin. He's oh, not, yeah. He stands up to yeah. Turin, and he knows full well he's about to die. Then Brandier, seeing his death in Turin's face, stood still and did not quail, though he had no weapon but his crutch. And he said, mm-hmm. all that has chanced is a long tale to tell, and I am weary of you. But you slander me, son of Hurin. Did Glaurung slander you? If you slay me, then all shall see that he did not. Yet I do not fear to die, for then I will go to seek Niniel, whom I loved, and perhaps I may find her again beyond the sea. 
And then, of course, you know, oh. Turin basically says, you're not going to find her. You're going to find Glaurung. And uh, and then he hews him. And then he kills him. With, with Gurthang, yeah. Hmm. Flat out cold-blooded murder. No, yeah. no question about no it. No question about it. And then he runs. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's mm-hmm. different from Cyrus in the sense that the killing of Cyrus was an accident and was really triggered by Cyrus's own actions, um, you know, at least initially, which is why he was held to be Nithin the Wronged. But right. it's his fleeing from the people into the woods. I mean, these people loved him. He was essentially the king. Nobody listened yeah. to Brandir anymore anyway. Oh, actually, that reminds me. Dorlis, uh, Brandir wasn't his lord anymore. Remember, he renounced his lordship. Yeah, I, I know. about that. still, he's the closest thing he had. But yeah, you're right. He is. And I, you know, I don't know if Dorlis, yeah, Dorlis wouldn't have yeah, known yeah. that anyway. That's true. That he may not have known. Yeah, that's true. He and, and, and Hunthor and, uh, and Turin had left. Yeah, that's true. That's but, a good point, um, though. Yeah. Anyway, just the fury, the anger... Um, and, and again, like one this. can hardly blame him hearing this must be like, you've got to. Oh, sure. Me. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that in those words, he heard the feet of his, his doom, doom overtaking him. Yes. He, he calls them lies. He slays Brandir, you know, because he's but slandering he him, but he knows deep down that there's, there's something some truth here. there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, there's this almost a sense of justice. He thinks that Brandir's lying. And this is, you know, we talked about his overactive sense of justice that gets him into trouble. Yeah. And here it is doing yeah. it again. Um, you know, justice is a good thing. But, you know, when it isn't tempered by wisdom, uh, you know, and it's out of control, we got a problem. Yeah, very well said. So, well, now we get the consequences of his actions. So I'm going to have you pick up exactly where I left off. Yep. But after a while, his madness left him. And he came to how the Nelith, and there sat and pondered all his deeds. And he cried upon Finduilas to bring him counsel, for he knew not whether he would do now more, whether he would do now more ill to go to Doriath to seek his kin, or to forsake them forever and seek death in battle. And even as he sat there, Mablung, with a company of grey elves, came over the crossings of Taglin, and he knew Turin, and hailed him, and was glad indeed to find him yet living, for he had learned of the coming forth of Glaurung, and that his path led to Brethil. And also he had heard report that the black sword of Nargathron now dwelt there. Therefore he came to give warning to Turin, and help if need be. But Turin said, You come too late. The dragon is dead. Then they marveled, and gave him great praise. But he cared nothing for it, and said, This only I ask. Give me news of my kin, for in Dor Lomond I learned that they had gone to the hidden kingdom. Well, there's something you wish you wouldn't have asked. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 And it would have been nice if you'd came like, I don't know, before my wife got pregnant. I don't know. Just thinking. Before yeah, you got married? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Well, if he had gone to Doriath or gone after Finduilas in the first place instead yeah, of hightailing it to Dor Loman, so much well, of this wouldn't yeah, have exactly. happened. Exactly. And he wouldn't have. And, and, and you know, Mablung only came when he found out that the black sword was there and that didn't happen until three years after the sack. So that's true. uh, I can't blame Mablung for that, but it's, you know, Mablung was spending those three years looking for more in the Neonor, right? Because it's the three years after the sack of Nargothron. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The dragon comes out and we know that Mablung had spent three years looking for them. So, right. Yeah. Amazing. Um, So Mablung finds him, asks him for news of his kin. We're not going to read the next couple paragraphs, but uh, Mablung, it's like, man, I wish I didn't Basically, have to tell you this. Tell- <laughs> uh, just keep, can you keep your sword, like set it aside? I don't want to, you know, don't, don't kill yeah. the messenger here. 
um, that Neonor is cast into the spell of dumb forgetfulness. Uh, and of course, Turin recognized that and was like, that's it. Of course. Yeah. You know, I killed Brandir. I, I was wrong because he was telling the truth. Yeah. Um, and then we the get words Faye again. Words of Glaurung were fulfilled in him. Yeah. Yeah. Laughed as one fay. Laughed as one fay. And he, he curses. He tells Mablon, go, return to Doriath, and a curse upon your errand. He runs away, uh, and and they chase him, but he gets to Cabot and Aris, and there he drew forth his sword mm-hmm. that now alone remained to him of all his possessions. And he said, Hail, Gurthang, no lord or loyalty dost thou know, save the hand that wieldeth thee. From no blood wilt thou shrink. Wilt thou therefore take Turin to Urimbar? Wilt thou slay me swiftly? And from the blade rang a cold voice in answer, Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly, that so I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master, and the blood of Brandir slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. Then Turin set the hilts upon the ground and cast himself upon the point of Gurthang, and the black blade took his life. But Mablung and the elves came and looked on the shape of Glaurung lying dead and upon the body of Turin, and they grieved. And when men of Brethil came thither and they learned the reasons of Turin's madness and death, they were aghast, and Mablung said bitterly, I also have been meshed in the doom of the children of Hurin, and thus with my tidings have slain one that I loved. Oh. Mm. Man. Yeah. Every time you wish this ended differently, and every time I know. it doesn't. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Every, there's, every time you feel like he's just, he's got one more chance to not do it. Yeah. One more chance to make the right choice. And, and he doesn't. And at this point, it, it is, I think it is um, partly a sense of justice. I think there's a lot more to it. Um, uh, I think he feels like he deserves punishment. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely he does. Yeah. But. Uh, I mean, he's essentially asking yeah. the sword to execute him for, yeah. for a crime, for a murder. Yeah. Um, and asking for mercy. Wilt thou slay me swiftly? You yeah. Know? Well, make it easy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just, oh, so, so painful. Yeah. Um, I, you ache for Mablung, you know, who just got yeah. here. And it's like, I didn't want to have to tell you this. And then, mm-hmm. sure enough, he feels like he's killed him with his words. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. With my tidings, I have slain one that I loved. It's, oh. uh, what, <laughs> he, he's such a hero. He, mm-hmm. he takes, he takes responsibility Absolutely. for this situation that he has no responsibility for. Yeah. You know, um, wow. And and just like Gwyndor and Beleg, Mablung loves him. Yeah. You know, we see that so deeply with the other two, and, and we see it here now with, with, with him. Yeah. Turin was not so. somebody you felt, you didn't feel dispassionate about him. You didn't feel, you didn't shrug your shoulders and go, eh, Turin, take him or leave him. You either loved you, him. You love him or you hate him. Or you were like and, Brandier and, and these others yeah. who, who didn't. And the vast majority of people really seem to have loved yeah. him. I mean, people people always wanted him to. He people were always king, rooting the for him. De facto him. king in both Nagathron yeah. and Brethil. Right. Um, yeah. People loved him. People listened to him. And, yeah. um, you know, even when he made mistakes, those who knew about all the mistakes he has made, he had made. You know, the Bellegs mm-hmm. and the Maplungs, they, they still, still loved love him. 
Absolutely, they um, do. You, 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 they, yeah, it's like you get the sense that everybody's rooting for him. They are, and he I think just they are, yeah. can't do the right thing. No, and you'll ever. I think you're gonna, we're gonna talk more about that, about that yeah. aspect of what tragedy is. Yeah, um, yeah, and we'll also talk I more think... about Gurthang. Don't worry, we're gonna get to that soon. But yeah, um, b- before we do, I, w- I want you to go ahead and finish up this, um, finish up the chapter for us, so that then we can talk about uh, Gurthang and, and then go on a little bit. Okay, I'll do that. Then they lifted up Turin and found that Gorthang had broken asunder. But elves and men gathered their great store of wood, and they made a mighty burning, and the dragon was consumed to ashes. Turin they laid in a high mound where he had fallen, and the shards of Gorthang were laid beside him. And when all was done, the elves sang a lament for the children of Hurin, and a great gray stone was set upon the mound. And thereon was carven in runes of Doriath, Turin Turambar Dagnir Glaurunga. And beneath they wrote also, Nianor Ninio. But she was not there, nor was it ever known whither the cold waters of Taglin had taken her. Oh, goodness. You know, we talked about There Turin... again, the, the, the lament, you know, the love yeah. that the elves have for them. Absolutely. Despite everything Absolutely. that's happened. You um, want to hear that song, but... Um... I know. You know, we, yeah. we also talked about Turin being recognized for, for his heroic deed of killing the dragon. And sure enough, that is what his tombstone, in essence, says. Yeah. That is that, yeah. He's the, the, the slayer. Slayer or the, of Glaurung. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he's yeah. known for. Not all these other horrible things that he did. Right. But this one amazingly right. heroic thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah. Well, let's um, let's go ahead and, and do that sidebar on Gurthang. I know we've talked about this for a while. We've been kind of excited yeah. about getting to this discussion <laughs> because it's certainly intriguing and it involves a lot of speculation, which is always fun. Always, always so I'll, fun. I'll let and you let's, start off. Yeah, well, you know, it's not every day that we see a sword uh, talk to its master. So, <laughs> No, it's um, not. And uh, and this we did get a question about this. So this is one of the questions that I alluded to earlier. Uh, Tarek in Chicago wrote in, you know, wanting us to address this question of the sentience of Gurthang. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he wrote in saying um, that he remembered that Aeol forged the sword, uh, which at the time was called Anglahel, and its twin, Anguirel. Uh, and he forged both of these swords from ore that came from a meteorite. Um, and Tarek acknowledged that, you know, we're, we're told in the book uh, that Anglahel is imbued with the malevolence of its forger. I think those are Tarek's words. I've got yeah, uh, that's not the actual text. words from the text. Um, but he also wonders the if dark the fact heart that it's, of its Smith, I think, is what. Thank is what you. Yeah. 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 But he also wants to know if you know what thoughts we have on whether it's a meteor, whether the fact that it's a meteorite has anything to do with its sentience. Hmm. Um, about that. He has a he has a really interesting speculative idea. He says he wonders if it might have. I'm going to paraphrase uh, heavily, Tarek. I apologize, but uh, just basically saying that you know maybe this you know this meteorite has some cosmic origin with the Valar. Um, maybe that it might have been related to, um, or maybe, well, related to Melkor's marring of Arda, either as, you know, an instrument of the marring, like maybe Melkor sent a lot of meteorites to destroy, Ar- to mar Arda, hmm. well, I guess is what I'm imagining there. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it was an effect of Melkor's marring of Arda. Um, he even, and he, he suggests that, you know, the theory that he, he's like, I know it's far-fetched, <laughs> but, <laughs> but these are the things but that I'm thinking those. about. I, I know do. it's far-fetched, um, but is Tom Bombadil J.R.R. Tolkien? 
no. No. Just no. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no. Um, but yeah, he says, you know, I know this might be, but I know this is far-fetched, but you know, hey, what if it was even an, you know, an Ainu spirit that was seduced by Melkor, you know, maybe one of these spirits of fire um, and eventually became a, you know, well, the meteorite. Being. I see what you mean. Yeah, the, the, the meteorite, meteorite yeah. itself. Well, an interesting yeah, theory. Became a, a sentient but inanimate being. Yeah, it's some neat speculation. I, I think he's got some cool ideas here. I mean, he admits they're far-fetched um, and there's yeah. nothing in the text to support it, but, no. you know, hey, we all, we all have our little pet theories about it's kind of fun you know, to think up stuff, stuff like, like that, that. I, it is yeah I, I i can't buy that a maya would inhabit a, a rock um on in the no, hopes that it might land in the place where somebody might then make a sword from right. the ore yeah <laughs> but yeah. uh yeah i mean it's it's certainly it's, intriguing it's it's a neat it's a neat fun theory um i mean i think to to really get to the heart of what the sentience you know the, the sentience uh that your thing well, has a, i think yeah this apparent sentience yeah this apparent sentience i know you've got your own thoughts on that um <laughs> i well, possibly i mean really the only thing that we we see about it are the words of melian right. where she says uh, uh and you're right it's there is malice in this sword the dark heart of the smith still dwells in it yeah. um if we're to take that literally, what I would gather is that um, any personality, let's say, I don't even want to use the word sentience, but any personality the sword might have would come from ale. Um, and maybe it's a case of a, a smith or a sub-creator uh, somehow endowing his sub-creation with some bit of his own will. Okay. Now, obviously, ale's no Sauron, so you're not going to get you know, something like the a, one not ring. not even an owl, eh? I mean, you know. No, no, oh, no. No, he's, he's no, he's an elf. He's nothing. No. You know, but, but so we're not going to see making the dwarves and, and they didn't. Right. And, and endowing them with his own will. That's a good point. Yeah. So we're not going to see even a personality as strong as those. But maybe there is some support for the idea that sure. um, that elves could impart some bit of their personality to something they've create. Okay. Uh, they've created. Um, I, I don't think that the fact that it's a meteorite would have anything to do with it. No. Only because um, there's the sentence that talks about it being from a meteorite. Um, is on page 201 and it says it was made of iron that fell from heaven as a blazing star it would cleave all earth delved iron hmm. what i get from that is it's it's hardness is a result of the fact that it was a meteorite you know the fact that right. it can cleave terrestrial iron is because it was a meteorite but i don't think that there's anything there to explain this sentience if sentience right. it is it's not um, like there is malice in this sword. It was made of iron that fell. It was from made of iron that fell star. from a meteorite. Yeah. Then you right, would see right. that B explains A. Here we're seeing that, that A is explains true. B, yeah. and B is yeah. just that it'll cleave elther, elf delved, earth delved iron. I can't speak anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I see what you mean. That's it's a yeah. it's an interesting thought. I. There's nothing. I mean, there's, no, there's, there's nothing. Really... This is all that fun speculation we get to do yeah. every now and then. Because um, even it, in History of Middle Earth, even in Hammond and Skull's Reader's nothing. Guide, I could not find any yeah, kind of explanation I, for this. I couldn't either. And, you know, you touched on something about the idea that, well, maybe uh, somebody can leave a mark on, a, on something they make. I mean, we know that elves left the mark on certain swords, that the swords made in Gondolin in the First Age glowed blue whenever they were around sure. orcs. Uh, that doesn't necessarily involve sentience or a will, but it certainly involves right. some sort of an enchantment, some sort of a uh, a magical ability. That's you true. Know, the ability to detect something and then respond, similar to what we saw with the Silmarils when they responded in you know in brightness to Luthien's song, uh, mm -hmm. you know on on Morgoth's in, in you know Morgoth's uh, throne room. Um, as for this, I, there are a few possibilities that came to my mind as we were talking about this. Uh, first is that. And I don't know that I go this route, but I can understand why it might be appealing. That this is simply the sort of literary license given to legends 
Um, we, we, this is where you have to remember mm-hmm. things like the fact that the style of the Silmarillion and the what it is in the Legendarium isn't the same as the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It's not a strict narrative. It's not a first-person account. Exactly. It's a, myth. It's a yeah. historical collection of, of myths and legends. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, it is, it's this legendary work. And as such, this might be the sort of thing that would have been added to the story in the retelling, the oral history uh, of the retelling of this legend. So that's one possibility. I don't know that I go there with that. I, I, I can't yeah. buy that as much. A second possibility, and this is interesting. I have to admit that this really kind of— I guess the—go ahead. Yeah, no. Well, no, I just I'm yeah. thinking about that first possibility. I think I'm with you. It's it's a possibility, sure. I, I think what scares me about going down that road is then you start to question so many exactly. things. Exactly, exactly. That's the thing. I, I mean, when, when we get things like some say or it is said that— I, mm-hmm. I want to believe those things, you know, like, right. like uh, exactly. Aule's creation of the dwarves and it is said right. that, that they will then, you know, be set apart Have in different place, halls and yeah, they'll and the come back. I want to believe yeah. that that's the truth. That or that's, the, yeah, or, Ong- or Ongoliant's fate, you know, we, yeah, that was, yeah, where that's she, one I really, Some yeah. say she, you know, in a, she ate herself. Yeah, really, really hungry one day and couldn't find yeah. a power bar. So she ate herself. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. I, I don't want to go there and dismiss this as being... Um, you know, just a, an embellishment because it's not really written in that way. Right. I mean, you I could make it that way, but I, I think you'd be stretching things. The second one is an interesting possibility. I'm still not sure I want to land on this one either, but there's the possibility that Turin simply thinks that it speaks. Um, he's distraught. He's suicidal. He wants to see his death as justice. Remember, he really has this strong sense of justice. And, and this choice of Gurthang would enable him to kill himself without being to blame for his own death. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a, you know, a figment it, it, of his imagine imagination. Imagine the sword is sentient and you don't feel like it's a suicide. You feel like the right. sword is executing it's you. It's executing you. It's doing justice. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore I'm not, you know, committing this evil act. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I can almost go there. But again, it's not written that way. It's not written yeah. as in Turin heard this. It's just written as in the blade from the blade rang a cold voice in answer. That seems like a narrative, not, you know, if it, yeah. had, if it had just said, and Turin heard a cold voice in answer, yay, I will drink thy blood gladly, then I might be able to buy that a little bit more. Yeah. But, but the way but the fact it's that it phrased, just says the sword said it. Yeah. yeah. Makes it sound like it's a pure narrative. So mm-hmm. that brings us to that third possibility where I've kind of always been which is that it really did speak, in which case I think what you talked about, the malice of Aeol clearly has something to do with it. Um, interestingly, though, in thinking this through, I was trying to think of other sentient objects besides the ring because the ring really is uh, an exception because it literally yeah. has the spirit of Sauron in it, literally. Right, right. Um, it made me think of what Bilbo found in the pocket of William the Troll. Um, oh, yeah, his, his, yeah, uh, his purse. As, yeah, yeah, as Tolkien says... Trolls' purses are the mischief, and this was no exception. Yeah, who are you? It squeaked as it left the pocket. <laughs> now, right. You know, that opens up an entirely different can of worms, right? Was the purse sentient? <laughs> or right. was it more likely enchanted with a spell? Was it maybe nothing more sophisticated than a, I don't know, like a car alarm keyed to the fingerprint of its owner? <laughs> so um, Bilbo touched it and set off the right, alarm. Right, exactly. Alarm I mean, yeah, if that's the case, then it's vastly different from Gorthang. Yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> it's an interesting question. It, it is. 
one without with an answer, no answer. unfortunately. Yeah, with no answer. I mean, I do think you and I both land on the idea that it really does speak. It's not a legend, and yeah. it's not Turin's own imagination, though those are two possibilities. Um, it, it clearly speaks, so the question is, under what power? I've got to land that there is some ability for Aeol to mm-hmm. embed his malice in it. Yeah, um, even if it wasn't intentional, even if he was no, just, no, I mean, a, if, if he was uh, just such a, he's just a, this person who's just racked with malice yeah, as, as effect, he was. It's just an effect of who he was, yeah. Yeah. I do think, though, that it's interesting and worth noting that um, even though it's been reforged, that Gurthang, well, first of all, responds to the name Gurthang, not Anglichel, um, but he says <laughs> that I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master. That's true. He yeah. knows full well he doesn't belong to Turin. Yeah, that's true. But interestingly, he knows he belongs to Beleg, not Thingol. So that means he was aware. He, I, I guess, I'm giving the sword yeah, gender yeah, here, yeah. right? But yeah. you know, pardon me, I please. Um, yeah, it. It yeah, it, it, it that's true. It that it had all, a sense of its yeah, master, its yeah. rightful master being Beleg. Exactly, which means it knew that it had originally been Thingol's, and that Thingol mm-hmm. properly gave him to Beleg. Mm-hmm. And that you know, so its loyalty, if it was sentient, was to Beleg, not to Aeol. So not to any malice that it had was not malice because I'm you know I'm I'm doing Aeol's bidding now. It's right. it's just it's just, just a full of malice. It's just a malicious spirit. Yeah, it's just a nasty. I shouldn't you say know, spirit, but it's just a it's a yeah enchantment a, or something. A, a sense of malice. Yeah, interesting. Now I know that probably means most of you think we're done, <laughs> and you're like, "Ooh, <laughs> it's about time!" Since we're you know at two hours, we're not done. Because we're we're going to actually finish the story. Um, I I know this is delving into the next chapter. We'll skip this when we get to the next chapter. And that's good because there's so much to talk about there that it's good that we're piling this in here. But I think we really want to to learn of how this ends. So um, it actually is an epilogue, I think. Well, not all of it, though, now that I think about it. But most of this is— A lot uh, of it is an epilogue in the novel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go ahead uh, and read from the next chapter. Uh, it's a lengthy reading. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to break it down, but um, worth going through. So so hang can in we, there. Can we give a page number before you start? Let me I see. don't have can a hard copy in front of me. It's I will not find very it for far you. in. It's, uh, one, it's two, uh, page 229. Yeah, yeah. It's like the yep. 11th or 12th paragraph. And as darkness as fell, darkness right? As darkness fell is where I'm going to start, yep. and yep. Uh, we're going to read that through to the to the uh, to the break um, uh, where the shadow still followed him. So that'll give you a second to look it up, uh, and then I'm going to go ahead and and read this. As darkness fell, Hurin stumbled from the rock and fell into a heavy sleep of grief, but in his sleep he heard the voice of Morwen lamenting, and often she spoke his name and it seemed to him that her voice came out of breath ill. Therefore, when he awoke with the coming of day, he arose and went back to the Brithiac, and passing along the eaves of breath ill, he came at a time of night to the crossings of Teglin. The night sentinels saw him, but they were filled with dread, for they thought that they saw a ghost out of some ancient battle mound that walked with darkness about it. And therefore Hurin was not stayed, and he came at last to the place of the burning of Glaurung, and saw the tall stone standing near the brink of Cabad-Nidermarth. But Hurin did not look at the stone, for he knew what was written there, and his eyes had seen that he was not alone. Sitting in the shadow of the stone there was a woman, bent over her knees, and as Hurin stood there silent, 
she cast back her tattered hood and lifted her face. Gray she was, and old, but suddenly her eyes looked into his, and he knew her, for though they were wild and full of fear, that light still gleamed in them that long ago had earned for her the name Elithwen, proudest and most beautiful of mortal women in the days of old. "'You come at last,' she said. "'I have waited too long.' "'It was a dark road. "'I've come as I could,' he answered. "'But you are too late,' said Morwen. "'They are lost.' "'I know it,' he said. "'But you are not.' "'But Morwen said, "'Almost. "'I am spent. "'I shall go with the sun. "'No little time is left. "'If you know, tell me. "'How did she find him?' "'But Orin did not answer, "'and they sat beside the stone "'and did not speak again. "'And when the sun went down, Morwen sighed and clasped his hand and was still, and Hurin knew that she had died. He looked down at her in the twilight, and it seemed to him that the lines of grief and cruel hardship were smoothed away. She was not conquered, he said, and he closed her eyes and sat unmoving beside her as the night drew down. The waters of Cabinidermarth roared on, but he heard no sound, and he saw nothing and felt nothing, for his heart was stone within him. But there came a chill wind that drove sharp rain into his face, and he was roused, and anger rose in him like smoke, mastering reason, so that all his desire was to seek vengeance for his wrongs and for the wrongs of his kin, accusing in his anguish all those who ever had dealings with them. Then he rose up, and he made a grave for Morwen above Cabad-Nidermarth on the west side of the stone, and upon it he cut these words, Here lies also Morwen Elithwen. It is told that a seer and harp-player of Brethil named Glirhuin made a song, saying that the stone of the hapless should not be defiled by Morgoth, nor ever thrown down, not though the sea should drown all the land, as after indeed befell. And still, tall Morwen stands alone in the water, beyond the new coasts that were made in the days of the wrath of the Valar. But Hurin does not lie there, for his doom drove him on, and the shadow still followed him. Boy, what an epilogue that is. Isn't it? Uh, it mm. always brings me to tears. I, it, yeah. It, well, it's, yeah. More no, than I, I think any other passage. Just yeah. that moment. Right, rightly so. Uh, yeah. uh, as a parent. Um, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. to read this um it just it 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 does something <laughs> it, it does really something does. to you if you're a parent you just um, can't help it it's, to, uh... to imagine um you know just just to imagine that feeling anyway um yeah. to be old and know that, to be old and know that your children have um you know have yeah, passed on before you um yeah. and for Morwen to have no idea how it happened and for <laughs> Hurin to know everything Oh, and everything in the most horrible way possible. In the most right, yeah, because he horrific. saw with Morgoth's eyes. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful epilogue. There's a there's a beautiful. I love when he says that she was not conquered. She was not I, that's conquered. That so is so key. It's so important. Yeah, yeah. 
But there's so much pain and sorrow, and you just you ache for for Morwen, who for the last three years, where has she been? Yeah, you know, and and she was gray and old. Uh, they were her eyes were wild and full of fear. She may have just been wandering the wild for these three years. She, she, yeah, that's quite likely. Because no, goodness. no other, you know, no other tidings of her any ever came. You no. know, so she no, must have yeah, been. No tidings came well, to Doriath, mm-hmm. and she certainly didn't end up in Brethil. Right. Uh, there's no way she went down to Nargothrond. Uh, no, nope. she she wouldn't have survived. So, yeah, just yeah. so sad, so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but a beautiful prophecy. I, I love that. Well, I mean, except for the spoilers, but <laughs> I mean, you that's know. all right. I think I think we've spoiled the fact that there are new coasts uh, yeah. a few times already. Yeah, the so geography's going to change gonna, a little bit. The geography's going. Yeah, your your old map. You're going to have to get rid of your old map. Your old map. Yeah. Well, you all know that already. That map of Beleriand. You're, you're going to have to get the new edition the... of the Thomas Guide. <laughs> Square A seven. It's just gone. <laughs> I I don't know where it is. It's gone. It's water now. I don't know. The entire page is gone. <laughs> Uh, oh man, Thomas Guide. Well, you know nobody who's nobody has a Thomas under Guide under thirty knows what a Thomas yeah. Guide is. <laughs> I, had the, I had the pleasure of of moving to, to Southern California in in the year two thousand, so I did still have, a, have Thomas a Thomas Guide. Guide. Yep, yep. Yep. Oh goodness, very helpful. Oh yeah. Oh, what a moment! And you know, I, I I would apologize for taking more time by going into that section, but I think it was really important that we read that. Partly because some of that really will inform our coming discussion on the power of the curse, yeah, uh, which yeah. you know we're going to dive into next. But um, just really powerful stuff. You know, he, I didn't lead in with any explanation, but for those of you who don't know, by this point, obviously, Hurin had been released by Morgoth. He didn't. Mm-hmm. He didn't escape. Morgoth realized, you know, that he's going to be able to do more damage if I free him. Right. Then, you know, I mean, I, in other words, I can accomplish even more. And we'll see that in the next chapter. When well, we, sure, because, we you know, the that. children are dead. Yeah. Um, the torture is over. And now it's time for the next phase yeah. of, of sending her and out to, to let him, you know, cause yeah. some damage out there. Yeah. Well, the, the, the next chapter actually explains quite a bit of that. So we'll, mm-hmm. yeah. we'll leave we'll, that we'll for them that. so that we have some more stuff to talk yep. about. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, you know, the next chapter, the the title gives it all away. The spoiler right there of the ruin of Doriath. Of the ruin of Doriath. Yeah, that's so we'll see not going to end has, well. No, it doesn't. Not, at least not for Doriath. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this is just such a um, such a beautiful and but sorrowful mm-hmm. yeah. moment. Um, and I think it. You know, it's it's interesting. And maybe this is a nice. Maybe this is a way to segue us into the discussion of the curse. Yeah, but yeah. Um, that that Hurin. Where is it? Um, Hurin wants to seek vengeance for his wrongs and for the wrongs of his kin. Yeah. Um, Hurin is proceeding from the assumption that his family has been wronged. Yep. Um, and and that gets back to this this question of this curse. You know, we keep talking about Turin's mistakes, Morwin's mistakes, Neonor's yep. mistakes. You know, we're, we we sort of seem like we're throwing blame uh, <laughs> at, at the characters, and 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 that we might not really think much about this curse, but. But there is something there, isn't there? Oh, We've there absolutely about this. is. There absolutely is. And I know you've got a few quotes that will kind of pull that out, and we'll yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just a few pa- passages I just kind of pulled at random as I was kind of sort of skimming through this. Um, page 197, the narration says that Morgoth set a doom upon them, the family of Hurin, of mm-hmm. darkness and sorrow. He set a doom upon them. Right. Um, 
that 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 speaks of an action. You know, yes, he, he did something to to put this doom on them. Uh, page two ten, uh, Gwyndor's words to Fenduilas when he is revealing to her who he who Turin truly is. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, a, do- "A excuse me, a doom indeed lies on him, but a dark doom." Right. Um, and remember how wise Gwyndor was. Gwyndor so so often knew the truth when others didn't. Uh, Gwyndor said it. Gwyndor was actually the first person to mention this curse. Yes, he was. And yeah, so that should tell himself. us that something. Yeah. Right. When when he it's, when Turin asked about his father. Yeah. Right. Um, page two twenty seven. I think this is uh, actually the beginning of the next chapter. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. That the chapter that you just started to read from. But uh, as all this is going on, all that Morgoth knew of the working of his malice was revealed to Hurin. Ooh. Again, uh, the working of his malice. Morgoth was doing something here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that all, I think it there, there is clearly a curse, and oh, yeah. I think you you found some some references. Uh, I think yeah. was it in the novel version that there's even in, some more exactly very clear? in Christopher Tolkien's introduction. I mean, there, there's okay. there's yeah. no questioning that there is a curse. I mean, and that yeah. the curse is real. That the curse is. The curse has some. some it's, a, it's a thing that has power. It has right, some power. right. How much power? We'll get to that. But uh, there's no question that it was there. Um, Christopher Tolkien says that Turin quote was condemned to live trapped in a malediction of huge and mysterious power, the curse of hatred set by Morgoth upon Hurin and Morwen and their children, because Hurin defied him and refused his will. Uh, Christopher goes on to discuss Morgoth's power, but also his fear, and this is cool. He points out that. The curse of such a being who can claim that the shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda and all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will is unlike the curses or imprecations of beings of far less power. This is so important right here. He says, Morgoth is not invoking evil or calamity on Hurin and his children. He's not calling on a higher power to be the agent. For he, master of the fates of Arda, as he named himself to Hurin, intends to bring about the ruin of his enemy by the force of his own gigantic will. Hmm. So, you know, that the, the power of Morgoth is really mentioned there. Um, mm-hmm. But he, he even points out, and I thought this was interesting, I'd never read this before until I read the, the introduction, that Tolkien himself considered an alternative title to this story. You know, we talked about the Narn i Hinhurin, you yeah. know, the, the, or Hin. I can't, I can't, yeah. I can only do that once or twice. Um, but uh, because the curse is so important, he almost called it the Narn Irach Morgoth, the tale of the curse of Morgoth. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that, that he wouldn't have you, called it that if there was no curse. Yeah. yeah. If the curse was just a, uh, you know, yeah. some voodoo hex. Some idle you know. thing. I mean, we we see idle curses sometimes in the Silmarine. Sure. I, I, yeah. I didn't think to mark any, but, you know, there there are times when, a, you know, a, Somebody a mortal character or an, right. an incarnate character. Yeah. Uh, an elf or a man, you know, sort of. Well, Turin uh, just cursed Mablung's errand. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Dora, yeah, that's a good point. There's a that's powerless a good point. curse. Yeah, There's, yeah he, that's he true. He has no ability to bring and anything an about. And, you know, Feanor's cast curses on people. And, oh, you know, yeah. it's these are but these are creatures that do not have any. Yeah. No power. You know, to, they to make they would be true. calling upon a power. Right. to to do this for them. Morgoth doesn't have to do that. He he is the he is, he the, is the being of power. Yeah. Um and as much as we've talked about Morgoth uh losing his power as he as he, you know, spends it, mm-hmm. um he puts it into Arda. I mean, we've talked right. about that before. Right. Into that, the world the, itself. Yeah, and you know, we talked about um that's why that 
one volume of the history of Middle Earth that we keep going to is called Morgoth's Ring because right. Arda was Morgoth's ring. He put so much of his own will into it mm -hmm. to subject it to his will. Um, Tolkien goes so far as to say that all matter in Arda had a Melkor ingredient in it. Um, and so it is, it's certainly conceivable that, that Morgoth had the power with so much mastery over the literally the matter of Earth yeah. uh, that he would have had the power to uh, to sort of put this doom on Turin in the sense that he's stacking the deck, um, mm -hmm. you know, stacking the deck against Turin. He's got, he's got all this power at his disposal, and he's going to use it yeah. to really stack the deck against Turin to really kind of lead Turin into making poor choices. Right. And we talked about how Glaurung is a chief and instrument. And, <laughs> and Morwen and Eanor and all the others. <laughs> Brandir and Dorlas. Well. <laughs> and, um, but it's interesting, the ripple effects that this has, you yeah, know, um, to make everybody around him sort of start making bad choices. Um, so... Um, yeah, and we talked about how Glaurung is such a, a, an important instrument of that, Glaurung's lies. Um, if if I were targeted by uh, a, a being like Morgoth, who had that Goodness. kind of power to make my life miserable, uh, it would feel like fate was against you, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, oh, of course one, it would. one can see how Turin felt this way. Everything, but I everything think, you do, you know, crumbles to dust. It, everything you yeah. do falls apart. Yeah, You'd feel it like feel, you're cursed, like literally. You would feel like you're cursed. You would yeah. feel like it was in, in, inescapable curse. But but I don't think it is. And I think right. that carrying, you know, I talked about him stacking the deck. If I want to carry that that card-playing metaphor forward, um, <laughs> you know, Morgoth stacked the deck and Turin was dealt a bad hand. But, uh, you know, but at the same time, a, a bad hand is, it's just that. It's a bad hand. How you choose to play it is up to you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what gets us back to this question of culpability, which, you know, you and I both, yeah. um, definitely have seen Turin as responsible for his own choices mm -hmm. and, and definitely, um, well, I think do Tolkien, believe that he's responsible Tolkien for it. makes it, makes it clear that that's he the does. perspective here. I think he does. Um, I, I think he does. And, and I think we will talk a little bit about some of Tolkien's sources and mm -hmm. some of Tolkien's inspirations that, yeah, you that would have led to You this, think we're but... close to done folks. We're still not. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> this is a long one. Um, but, you know, and, and I guess, you know, for anybody who's wondering why we're going all into this, I mean, there is a lot of there's a lot of talk out there about how much of, how much did this curse, you know, how much power did this curse have? I think, right. um, you know, readers tend to fall down on one of two sides, either the they think that Turin is responsible for everything um, mm -hmm. or that Turin is not responsible for anything, that it's yeah. this curse that's driving him. And uh, clearly it is not the second one. I think this curse is a factor, but it's not. It's not the only factor. And I think he had he had power that oh, yeah. he had power to, con, you know, to change his fate that he, he didn't really exercise. I agree. You know, there's a quote. Uh, I think you'd mentioned it earlier when we were talking about this. Uh, but I know I also included it in the essay that uh, is going to come out next week in, in the Prancing Pony Pondering. There's a quote from the novel version that Morgoth began to fear that Turin would grow to such a power that the curse that he laid upon him would become void. And that mm -hmm. he would escape the doom that had been designed for him, mm -hmm. or else that he might retreat to Doriath and be lost to his sight again. Right. That tells us so much. Well, first of yeah. all, it tells us about Morgoth's fear, which Christopher Tolkien mentioned, but th this quote is directly related to that. Morgoth literally fears Turin growing in power. So that his, the curse is void. Void. Yeah. And that he could escape. That he would the escape doom. it. That or, had been designed for him. Yeah, exactly. Or that he might 
be lost, uh, that he wouldn't be able to see him anymore and work his, his you know, curse upon right. him. So that tells so us it was, that, that... So it seems like it was far from inescapable. Oh, yeah. There are any number of things that could have happened. He either uh, gets powerful enough or he escapes the doom or, or, he, or he just manages to hide. Yeah. 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 Hiding is sometimes a good option. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes, um, yeah. You know, Christopher Tolkien also in the introduction hints at this um, when he, he says this, the curse of Morgoth seems to be seen, as is talking about in the book, in the text itself, the curse seems to be seen as power unleashed to work evil, seeking out its victims. So the fallen Vala himself is said to fear that Turin would, would grow to that power. That's big because it, it it's not an inescapable thing. It is right. a power that seeks out its victims, but if it can't find them, it can't accomplish the goal. That's why Doriath right. is so important. And that's a big reminder right. because it tells us that the very first things that happened that triggered this in the first place, the the, the, the fight with Cyrus, the yeah. death of Cyrus, and the, the decision to leave uh, and to flee judgment, all of those things took place and they didn't have to because at that point he was lost to the sight of Morgoth. Hmm. At that point, the curse is wow. inoperable. So that's a good point. That's a very good point. That was so, all Turin. There was, was no all curse Turin. at work at that point. That was all Turin and his, and his bad choice. 100% Turin right there. And Turin and, and his pride. And I know, we, mm-hmm. you know, we want to talk about pride as sort of this, um, this driver of his choices. But the thing that amazes me about all of this is um, it's, it's sad, but it's also just kind of amusing <laughs> how much Turin spends his entire life trying to change his own fate. Yeah. Um, you know, even going so far as to adopt the name Turambar, Master of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> Without realizing that as a man, he had the power. Let's uh, let me get my uh, my Wizard of Oz, um, the the was it the Good Witch uh, voice? You know, you oh, had yeah. the power all along um, to go you home. Had power, you had the power all along to change your fate. Yeah, um, you did. You're right. Well, that's a <laughs> <laughs> because um, because we know, and we talked about this mm-hmm. chapters and chapters ago. We know that men have a degree of free will. Uh, a virtue to shape their life uh, yeah. amid the powers and chances of the world beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And that goes back to uh, chapter one or chapter two. Mm-hmm. I think it's chapter yeah, one. Chap- yeah, very early on. So I think you're right, he chapter had... one. It's not the Ainulindale, but it's chapter one. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he had the power. He didn't have to flee. He didn't have to become something he wasn't in order to control his fate. Right. All he had to do Change was his actions. Change his actions. Start making some better decisions. But shape his life. He has the virtue, the, 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 the power to do that. Yep. Even though, unlike the rest of ordinary men, he's being opposed. That's yeah. the thing to realize is he's his will is being opposed mm-hmm. actively, but not in a way that couldn't be overcome right. or avoided. More right. likely avoided. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> overcome, probably not so much. Um. Yeah. yeah. And we see that but, in all the constant things that he does. Um, you talked about the, the, the name changes, which are awesome. But, you know, if we look at all the other things that he's done, they every single one of them seems to stem from this this problem of pride. We've talked about his, his sins of pride. Everything from, let's just kind of run through a laundry list. We've got mm-hmm. hurling the vessel at Cyrus and then chasing him to his death and then fleeing judgment, joining the yeah. outlaws and, and acting evilly. You know, we know mm-hmm. that he, they they slayed, they slew people that yeah. you know were good people. Yeah. Um, refusing the pardon of Thingol when Beleg brought it to him. Boy, that um, yeah. Oof. 
That one's just, you know, that one's just he he couldn't swallow his pride no, and take part. Seriously, yeah, yeah. you can't go back. I mean, yeah. If you right there, go back to Doria. This is yeah. over. This whole because this story is over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then your mother and sister can come, and you can say hi to your sister instead of marrying her, which yeah. would really be good. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> um, this one's not so much a sin per se, but it's certainly an act of pride that cost him putting on the helm again and revealing himself to Morgoth. Totally yeah, unnecessary. As you said, he didn't need better to, to lie hidden at times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the slaying of Beleg, I don't know. This was not intentional. It was impulsive, but I don't want to hold that against him so much. I mean, that was clearly, um, you know, just an, an, an act. That, that's a tough one. That does seem kind of like a bad luck thing. It really does. I mean, that that seems, you know, more fate and less pride. Uh, yeah. Fact, that's definitely not a pride thing. It's just impulsiveness, maybe. Um, yeah, True. But it's only at that point that he finds out about the curse. Mm-hmm. So after that, everything is is post having, you know, now he knows there's a there's a curse well, on him. And it's interesting to note that the trajectory of his life doesn't really change when he no, finds it doesn't. out about the it's curse. It's already it's not like he, that direction. Right. Yes. It's not like he learns, oh, there's this curse. I better start really making the right choices. Right. Or you think you would start nor does he would start Right. And nor does he go the opposite direction to say, no. oh, well, there's this curse on me. So, oh, well, I guess. Oh, you well, know. shrug my shoulders. I might as well start having fun. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. After that, the pride just jumps out, you know, his rise to power in Nargothrond, the way he treats Gwyndor, his decision mm-hmm. to fight without stealth and build a bridge, and then yeah. his decision to ignore the message from Ulmo to destroy oh, that yeah. said bridge. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, in regards to that one, we didn't talk about this one. There's uh-huh. a there's a bit of Ofer mode in, in that in the Children of Hurin that happens uh-huh. in that scene. Um do you remember that line where Turin says something like, there is but one Vala with whom we have to do, and that oh, is Morgoth? Yes. That's that his just, response to the— Doesn't—isn't I mean, that, that's, that's very Feanor-like, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, that's 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 getting into blasphemy. It really <laughs> I mean, is. You know, you know, equating Morgoth with the Valar and, and saying that Olmo's— cur- um, Excuse me, not Olmo's curse. Olmo's warning is, is, is worthless. Yeah, I don't um, need to listen you know. to that. He, I, yeah. I got nothing to do with him. I only have to deal with Morgoth. I only have to deal with Whoa, Morgoth. Really? Because Manway's yeah. king of the whole planet. I mean, I know he's kind of not doing much lately, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. His pride, his, just complete pride, pride. just comes screaming out. I, not doing what Gwyndor says about Fenduelas, though. Again, that's like the slaying of Belag. I can't hold that fully against him because he was under mm-hmm. that uh, spell of paralysis from the dragon. Uh, but once that's he true. was free to move again, he chose the wrong thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and that and that had so much to do with the later, the things that happened later. Because exactly. if he had just gone, you know, if he had just yeah. gone and, you know, rescued her, saved Fendulas, so many things could have happened. Well, you know? then he probably wouldn't have married his he, sister because he would have been married right. to Fendulas. He, he could have married Fendulas. He could have, um, he could have gone back to Nargothrond and dispatched yeah. Glaurog. Um, anything could have happened anything to change right. what happened with Morwen and Neonor later on. Yeah. Not to mention um, poor Fendulas. Oh, I know. Poor Fendulas. <laughs> Oh, that's got to hurt. That was just not the way to go. She hung um, around all day waiting for him. All day long. <laughs> How many bad <laughs> things are we going to say about being, you know. I know. I know. Yeah. She uh, she, she put a sticky note on the board <laughs> with a thumbtack. Oh, man. Oh, uh, man. Uh, the chaos that he causes in Dor Loman, uh, the slaying of yeah. Bada and, and kind of how he just up just uproots their whole lives and then leaves. <laughs> You know, leaving yeah. everybody else to face the consequences of his of his wrath and of his pride. I mean, I, I say that saying this, even if the spell of Glaurung is irresistible, and I have to say 
To some extent, it appears that it might be, given the way Neonor, uh, you know, succumbed. Yeah, that's true. Turin I mean, still, we... you know, in, in terms of like, okay, maybe he couldn't have helped himself in terms of not going after Fendulas. Maybe. You could make that argument. I'm not so sure, but let's assume that you could. Even if that's true, Turin still slew Brada after his eyes were open and the last threads yeah. of the spell were loose. So, again, we're back yeah. into full Turin here. Right, um, yeah. And then, of course, in uh, in Brethil, his eventual usurpation of Brandir's authority. Um, <laughs> Replay of his, his greatest hits from Nargothron exactly. there. Exactly, Nargothron right, Part yeah. 2. Uh, his gloating over Gurtha, uh, over, yeah. uh, over Glaurung. Over Glaurung, yeah. That might have been the dumbest thing he'd ever done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the cursing and slaying of Brandir, totally unjustly. And then, depending on how you look at his suicide, his suicide. I mean, yeah. You know, it, uh, it, it's different from the willing surrender of life. You know, we talked about this with hope and despair, and we talked mm-hmm. about Aragorn uh, or even Theoden, who's going and is willing to die but isn't actively seeking his death. Right. And Denethor, who, on the other hand, you know, lights himself on fire. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's going to leave a mark. Um, yep. You know, here we we get a guy who's actively committing suicide, and that's – yeah. You got to remember. This is where it sometimes helps to remember Tolkien's own personal worldview. Um, in in Christian doctrine, especially in Catholic doctrine, suicide's a, a grievous sin of pride. It, it yeah. you're saying that I have the right to do with the you know with my body, which God made. I can mm-hmm. destroy it. I have that right. Well, right. You know, in in Tolkien's world, that's not the case at all. You don't have the right. To take well, and, your own and life. it's not Gandalf yours to take. says, and Gandalf says exactly yes, that to Denethor You're right, in exactly the book. Right, it is not for you to decide. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so and that's a very good point. I'd forgotten about that, but yeah, that's a good reminder. So yeah, that's just kind of a laundry list of of some of those things. Um, yeah, pride again and again. Um, and and I think it's it is very clear that these are these are his own actions. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, despite all of that. <laughs> There's, you know, there's uh, this was one place I I, I really thought we were going to have a, a little bit of a disagreement and give the, the listeners some some entertainment here because uh, people <laughs> people keep telling us that we need to disagree more. I know. Uh, I, I know. I don't know what that's about. We just we either we I'm, click on too much. We this must stuff. just be too convincing. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Or we're like Oradreth. We just kind of go with whoever, we just like whatever. whatever. Yeah, it sounds good <laughs> for now. Um but I, uh, I, yeah, I kind of thought we might have some fireworks at this part, but we were talking about it. And I think we're kind of on the same page here that um, that there is a distinction between Turin's sins of pride and some of the other sins of pride. I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody like a fan or, you know, right, we, right. let's pull out the fan or pinata again. Boom. Um, we've there ain't no uh, more as, candy in that one. We've yeah. <laughs> no, no. Just ashes coming out of it now. <laughs> Um, you know, like I said, there, you, people tend to either um, a lot of readers. I'm not yeah, saying everyone, yeah, yeah. but I see a lot of uh, Turin is completely innocent because of the curse, or Turin is completely guilty and he's the most reprehensible human being that ever lived. Um, I <laughs> I have heard him I've heard him called the human Feanor, hmm. um, but uh, but I don't think that he is because no. I think that um, for all of this, I think there is something. Pitiable, pitiable about him, and he Very is. So, yeah. uh, he he makes the wrong choices again and again and again. Yeah. But but you do still pity him. You 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 can understand how people like Mablung and Beleg and Gwyndor would just Love do anything Absolutely. for him. Absolutely, and and it's um, and it's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, I. I think Tolkien does this very intentionally, and we'll we'll mm-hmm. talk some about that. Sure, but um, 
yeah, I, I, it's yeah. um, it's yeah. an interesting thing. And I just want to say, you know, we're beating up on Turin a little bit. We're talking, listing out all of the sins of pride, laundry list, as you said. But again, there is something that you know we want to root for him right up Absolutely until the end, like you said, do. right yeah. up until the end. We want the story to end differently. We really do. And that's why, you know, we don't disagree as much as we might have. Uh, I'm sorry, listeners. I know you're right. We need to. <laughs> we Maybe should. one of you can convince him between now and summer when we discuss the films. Maybe one of you can convince him of how great The Hobbit was. Uh, and then that way we can disagree. <laughs> and then we can disagree about that. That would be why fun. Does it have to, why, does, why do I have to be the one who has to take the pro? <laughs> why, do, why do you have Hobbit to be the one who's going to be wrong? Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, Sorry. Um, I don't want to argue that losing position. No, I know. But you know what? Do you, were you ever in debate team or anything like that where you had to argue the opposite side? No, I, I wasn't. That was always I kind of wish I had been. That was always a challenge. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that. It was, it was hard. But anyway, I digress. It took us three <laughs> hours to or two <laughs> to, and to half, finally digress. Two, two and, and, and a half hours, hours to, digress. to digress, I should say. Yeah. Um, anyway, we agree, I think, that he's not as responsible as, for example, Feanor is for mm -hmm. his own actions. Um, I think we would say to borrow a legal term that there are mitigating circumstances um, in, in Turin's story that are just totally absent from Feanor's story. Feanor's, it's the other way around. There's aggravating circumstances. There's the fact that, you know, you had absolutely no need to, to kill the Teleri. You had no need to burn right. their ships. Right. Uh, those are aggravating circumstances, not mitigating. Um, you know, but, but so, yeah, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Okay. No, I was going to say, but so like by the end of Feanor's story, I am I am glad he's dead. I'm yeah. I'm glad that 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 Middle Earth that bad is relieved of this. Yeah, Middle crazy Earth is relieved nut. of that bad influence. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas in this case, you're just like, oh man, I'd hoped for once he'd make the right call. Yeah. Um. But you know, in, in fairness to to Turin, and talk about those mitigating circumstances, when the darkest evil and the most powerful individual entity in all of Arda says that his thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom upon all whom Hurin loves. Yeah. That that makes the idea of doing the right thing or making that right decision just a touch harder. One it makes assume. it hard, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I agree we should disagree more. It we would have should. been a lot more fun uh, in the Feanor story had you been uh, like those passionate fanboys who justify the kinslaying because, well, you know, they should have helped. <laughs> so. But then I... That... <laughs> <laughs> they should have... Come on, they should have helped. If... If I was on that page with Feanor, I don't think this podcast would have ever started. I don't, I no, don't I think... probably wouldn't have. I probably we wouldn't have. Yeah, I would have yeah, tried a solo like, one. It would have gone two episodes. I would have said yeah. I'm done. <laughs> that would have been uh, irreconcilable differences. No doubt about that. But, you know, on this topic. we will try of, to disagree more, I promise. We will try to disagree more. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that we had a, a question um, from Maya in Michigan. Uh, and, Who's and gone that, two and a half hours going, I thought you were going to get to my question. I thought you guys could talk about me. Yeah. Um, but she, you know, she kind of wrote into us on Facebook a little, a little while ago saying, you know, why is Turin called an elf friend when uh, they speak of him at the Council of Elrond and Fellowship? He's mentioned alongside Hador and Hurin and Beren. And and Maya even said, you know, what does he do? You know, what does he do to be compared to them? I, You know, I'm, based on, you know, what I know of the story, you know, what does he do? Uh, I can't think of anything that kind of makes him worthy of that. And and I think that's a, I think that's a common um yeah. That's sort of a common reaction to the character yeah. because his misdeeds are so bad. Um, well, when compared to Baron or Hurin, it's like, what? well, certainly, yeah, like, yeah, none of none of those guys really even had any significant misdeeds. No, um, you know, and it, there's a couple of answers as to why he's called F, why he's called an elf friend. I mean, partly it's just because the Adine are all considered elf friends, right, but, right. Um, but I mean, you know, again, he did kill a dragon. Mm -hmm. That That's was no small thing. feat. 
and, and considering think, the next person we know who slays a dragon is definitely considered a hero. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, there's just again, there's this sort of um, there's this attitude towards him within the legendarium itself that he is remembered somewhat fondly, despite all yeah. of his misdeeds. Absolutely. You compare that with Feanor, who you know, Tolkien himself called evil. Yeah. Called his oath blasphemous, you know? Yeah. You compare that with somebody like an R. Farazon and um <laughs> oh, wow. to I didn't even thought, poor yeah. Numenor under under his Oof. leadership, you know. Um so I don't know. Um I, I just think it's uh I think it, there is something to this. I think it was very intentional on Tolkien's part to make him a, a more pitiable character. Oh, certainly. And I think that's because he was really going for a tragedy here with this story. Yes, and um, that's key. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that. In fact, I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. Before yeah. we do, I, I want to talk about, um, well, a little discussion I talked th- that I mentioned that we would talk about before we got to the end of this chapter, and that was about Boethius. I think I remember saying when we first started this chapter, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get to talk about Boethius. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're two and a half hours in, but sure, we'll start talking about him. Uh, Boethius. We'll get, to it in uh, this, we'll get to it in this episode, we we'll promise. Get to it, no matter it how long it is. Um, Boethius of the House of Bayor. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he belongs for that, but um, he does. He wow. was a uh, that's great. <laughs> he was a sixth century philosopher, <laughs> and uh, he he wrote a, a famous work called Constellation of Philosophy. Now, some of this is going to appear in a much more expanded format in the essay that will hit uh, the Prancing Pony Ponderings next week. So just be aware of that. So try not to steal my own thunder here, but I think it's important for listeners to tie it in. Um, Boethius in, in this work tried to reconcile this concept of, of free will. You know, we've been talking about the curse and does Turin have free will. Free will with this idea of a world sovereignly operated by God. We've talked about fate and free will and all of that. Um, some of Boethius' solutions to this uh, sticky wicket are, we see them throughout Tolkien's Legendarium, little snippets here and there. And this is as good a place to bring them up because in Turin's story, more than in any other story, we see this confluence of of providence and fate and chance and free will. So even though I'm going to go into more depth on it next week, uh, I wanted to start here. First, uh, just so we know this, Boethius' work uh, was translated into several languages, including Old English. It was... Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been around, obviously, since the 6th century, so it wasn't Old English then. Um, for a long time, people believed that that translation was actually written by King Alfred the Great, but I was reading recently that modern scholars are no oh. longer convinced, so... Interesting. Maybe not. It might have been one of his, you know, it might have been ordered by him to be. Yeah. Somebody who was yeah, part of his court uh, or something. Yeah, exactly. But it is it, it is a very, you know, it's an old English translation that dates back to that time frame. Uh, and of course, Tolkien was the scholar of old English. So, he, you know, one so he might think. have actually read it. He might have known it. huh? Well, in fact, it turns out that he did. Excerpts okay. from that translation were actually included in the text for his final English exams. <laughs> so he definitely if he did his wow. homework, he was familiar with it. Um, and Tom Shippey, Tolkien biographer who wrote um, uh, Author of the Century and Road to Middle-Earth, he says mm-hmm. that Tolkien knew this translation well. So it's it's not surprising that Tolkien kind of had this Boethian view of providence, fate, and free will kind of sneak into his legendarium. So okay. I need to explain what that means, though, what a Boethian view is. Um, Time in this concept, in this in this idea, time is itself a, a created thing. So God, or in the in the Middle Earth legendarium, Eru, mm-hmm. exists outside of time, and and we get that right. We get the timeless halls, the timeless halls, right? And yeah. that's really key because that tells us he's someplace outside of time. Now, this was Boethius' way of 
avoiding those uh, kind of deterministic arguments. Uh, the idea that, well, you don't have free will because God previously determined you would listen to this podcast today. So since that was determined in the past, you are not free to choose. You couldn't not control it. Yeah, you couldn't control it. God already right. knew it was going to happen. So he, all he knew of your it was going to happen. So it's already yeah. ordained. Thus, there's no free will. Right. But Boethius got away from that by saying, well, God exists outside of time. So there's no past, present, or future. All is present. So that's a simplistic, and please forgive me for that, but I don't want to spend 45 minutes on a philosophy lecture. <laughs> sure. um, but that is the simple nutshell version of it, and it avoids that deterministic argument, but it doesn't mm-hmm. address that interplay between fate and free will. So I'm going to get to that next. Um as always, somebody else said it better than me. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to summarize. But the quote I provide in next week's essay, the source is an article on um, on Boethian philosophy and Tolkien's work. And part of that article is recreated in Hammond and Skull's Reader's Guide. So you can find it in Hammond and Skull's Guide. But the summary is real straightforward. So I'm just going to leave it right here. We'll, we'll lay it out. We're almost done with this. There's providence, which is the divine reason that orders the universe. This would be Eru's plan. Okay, that's providence. Eru's mm-hmm. the divine reason that orders everything. Fate is... And, you go ahead. and we know that there's a plan. I mean, we, we see references to the divine plan, the even divine plan. In things like the ennoblement of, of men Absolutely. through the blood of elves. Yeah. So we, yeah. We're, it's a given that there's this. Yep. Fate, because oftentimes we kind of see that and fate as being the same, but it's really important because providence starts there. It starts in that timeless place. Fate is the manifestation of that order within our, our, our linear time frame, right? So as, as we go from moment A to moment B to moment C, and we can't go back to moment A because time goes in one direction and at one speed, fate is the unfolding of that reason or of that order, that plan within our time frame. So, okay. um, so that's the, the difference. Yeah. So it's taking it from a timeless view of everything at once, knowing everything at once. Exactly. To... Uh, a playing out of exactly playing out all this stuff in, in time. Yeah, right. as it as it comes as it gets unfolded in in time. Now, mm-hmm. chance is different from fate. Chance is well, it's not different then. It's a subset. <laughs> chance <laughs> is fate that occurs unexpectedly and for reasons that we in our timeline cannot know or explain. Things that might appear random but are actually fate. Like the biggest mm-hmm. thing I can think of in the Legendarium, Bilbo finding the ring. Right. Bilbo finding the ring looks like chance. It's really fate. It's mm-hmm. um, it, it, things that appear random, but are clearly the the the, the finger of Iluvatar, you know, the hand of mm-hmm. God working in the story and free will, which is separate from all of those. That's the ability of individuals to exercise control over their conduct, you know, to, how the, what they think, how they act, what they say, what they do or what they don't say, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um I'm going to kind of draw it to an end there because I think that's enough to start with. Uh, Applying this to Turin could take another hour, so just read my (laughs) essay next week. Um, But I will give you a hint about the conclusion. We've already talked about this. This wasn't an inescapable doom. It was an immense evil, difficult but not impossible to resist, and the foolishness and pride of Turin, Uh, and even Morwen, really. Mm. So. There you have it. There's Boethius wow. and how that fits with fate and free will. Well, having having read that essay, which is brilliant, by the way, I will Thank say you, to everyone listening that, yes, you should go out and read that essay as soon as it's up there. Um, uh, really fascinating. So basically all this boils down to 
There's mm-hmm. providence, there's fate, there is chance, but there is also free will. Exactly. There's providence yeah. to start. We see it played out as fate. We, ex- I mean, the, the, we as, a, as the reader, because we get to see that omniscient narrator view. Mm-hmm. But if we were living in the timeline, we'd see it as chance. But that's yeah. why we always have Gandalf saying, if chance meet, you know, right. if chance right. there be. Right. Um, that's why the, the, when you hear that, you're talking about chance, the recognition that chance is fate. But mm-hmm. then free will, which is the ability of people or, you know, dwarves, elves, hobbits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I go into length at that in the essay, too. So read that next yeah. week about proving that we, that there is free will, you know, in, yeah. in terms of moral culpability. But we'll get to that. So, yeah, yeah, and that's what well, it boils down to. That's great. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you know, it's, it's a little it's, dense. No, it, it, well, it is, but it's, it's fascinating <laughs> stuff. And I mean, of course, Tolkien as a medievalist would have known Boethius. Um, I mean, I know a little bit of Boethius just from my undergrad, you know, mm-hmm. doing a little bit of medieval literature in undergrad. Um, I don't know it as deeply as what you just kind of laid out, but I'm, you know, I'm aware of some of the stuff that he said. Sure. Um, I, you know, you know, when I was looking for some sort of proof, some sort of evidence that Tolkien would be adopting this, you know, would be going with this free will um, concept with Turin. I actually went to another ancient philosopher. <laughs> oh, wow. This is going to be fun. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to start with a Princess Bride reference. Uh, have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? <laughs> Morons. Morons. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Ar- so Aristotle is the one I'm going to go with here, um, who I believe was also an influence on Boethius, by the way, but I yes, could not possibly absolutely. articulate articulate how he was. But um, but Aristotle wrote the book on Greek tragedy, the poetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been saying all along that, you know, this is like a Greek tragedy. I've it done that for is. a reason. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, throughout the poetics, uh, Aristotle's favorite example, the tragedy that he keeps on referring to is Oedipus, the character mm-hmm. of Oedipus and Oedipus Rex. Now, I'm sure a oh, lot wow, of people... Are... fate really plays a hand, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Because I think, you know, if you're not familiar with the story, you might just know... Oh, Oedipus killed his father and married his mother. That's probably what everybody knows about Oedipus. Yeah. Um, but if you if you read the tragedy by Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, y- you see that he was he was told by an oracle that he was going to kill his father and marry his mother, um, and he acted on that, trying to escape that fate. Just and like trying Turing to does. escape that fate is what actually got him into that mess. Right. Because because yeah. he didn't know he was adopted. Right. Being... <laughs> Basically, what it boiled down to. So, um, so are you ended... telling me I need to make sure I tell my son that he's adopted? Probably at some point, yeah. He's black. I'm white. That might, I might not have to tell him. <laughs> he, might, he might figure it out. <laughs> he, he might already know. <laughs> he might figure it out. Um, okay. So, yeah, he ended up, you know, thinking that his father and mother were the persons, the people who raised him. Yeah. He leaves yeah. home and he ends up doing exactly the, yep. the thing that he was trying to avoid. That he was, yep. um, terrible, and so, terrible story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And and it's 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 very close to Turin's story, not just for the incest thing, but obviously because of this character having the pride to think that yeah. he can conquer his own fate and tragically failing. Um, Tolkien himself actually compares Turin with Oedipus in our favorite letter, oh, really? 131. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. He does. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, he, he, he's talking about Turin. It's actually the only reference to Turin in his letters. Um, but uh, he mentions, you know, Turin has a little bit of uh, Sigurd and the Finnish Kullervo. And the Greek Oedipus. And he even calls it the tragic tale of Turin Turambar and his sister Niniel, of which Turin is the hero. Okay. So I think it, yeah. See, so I think thing, he is, certainly never refers to Feanor as a hero. That's what this I think is true. You know, no, exactly. about earlier, the, right. the difference Calling between uh, evil and yeah. blasphemous and things like that. Right. Um, 
And I think calling it a tragic tale of which Turin is the hero, I think it's pretty clear That's key. that Turin is intended as a bona fide Greek tragic hero. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and you know, I think um, I think the certainly the influence is there. Uh, the story fits the pattern of a Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at something like Oedipus, it's this downward spiral of a man who starts out with everything and ends up with nothing. Um, right. Reversal of fortune is a word that we often use. Um, I could... I, I actually might do an essay on this too on the principle of boundaries because there are there are a lot of different There's specific a lot elements. Here to d- d- yeah. dive into yeah yeah. There's a lot of specific stuff you know different stages of the of a tragedy narrative that really happen here in Turin. Um, but one of the things that um, that you know you always get is the catastrophe at the end. Right. Um, and the original meaning of catastrophe was you know an unhappy ending of a tragedy, and that's. Exactly why Tolkien came up with you catastrophe as a happy yep. ending, but that's another story. Um, but um, but the purpose of the catastrophe is always to invoke pity and fear in the audience, and that's why yeah. I keep on saying that Turin is pitiable, not judgment or condemnation. Exactly, that's why it's easier for us to find that soft spot in to our condemn heart to condemn Fan. Yeah, exactly. We can condemn we can condemn Feanor. We can condemn Arpharazon, but it is harder to condemn Turin. I think. Yep. Um, but where I'm going with this, uh, because I said I wanted to talk about this in reference to free will, the tragic hero always has a tragic ah, flaw. Yes. And um, and it's interest. What's interesting about this is that we always call it a tragic flaw in English, but the Greek word uh, hamartia actually means fault or error. Which I know that I, I know that word, and I don't know much Greek. There, there, it's, uh, it could, I, I wonder if that's got a relation to sin, biblically speaking. I believe it does. Error, yeah, I believe it. Homartia. It might be the word used for sin in uh, in the the New Testament. Yeah, I'll have to look that Greek. up. Yeah. That's fascinating because that I'm like I'm I'm pretty sure my pastors used that word before. <laughs> yeah, and and all of those fault, error, sin, those all imply a degree of culpability that flaw doesn't imply. So I, I so I think you know going back to the Greek word, there is an implication that the tragic hero is responsible for their own actions. Um, the the story wouldn't inspire pity and fear if they weren't. You know, if they were just bad luck, ill fate, it, it just wouldn't inspire the same kind of fear. Um, but to see a person make bad choices and see their life just completely spiral out of control, I think that does inspire pity and fear. Yeah. And and so I think that it is necessary for the hero to have free will for this pity and fear to occur. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's kind of my Aristotle, the way I've approached this from Aristotle. I think if, if he, if Turin was not responsible for his own actions, it just wouldn't be a tragic story. I don't think that Tolkien would do that. Um, you know, and and it's, it's compelling because he makes bad choices because he's someone we can relate to someone, you know, we could be that guy. He's not, he's not horrible like a fan or he's not, shining example like a tour he's just no you know he's, he's just, just a guy Zephod's and just we this guy you know he's just <laughs> <laughs> man let's get one more reference in there oh uh, uh, you know yes, always will exactly so um man. yeah uh, you know uh, uh, that's as you said you know we we yeah. don't we do feel pity for turn as we opposed do. to the kind of contempt <laughs> or condemnation that we might feel for somebody <laughs> like a fan or well, now that we've kind of dragged Turin over the coals, but also said, oh, poor <laughs> Turin, um, we should probably talk a little bit about the curse now that we understand that it's not completely impossible to defeat as it relates to Morwen and Neonor. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, real briefly, because obviously we've been going at this for closing in on three hours Nearly now. Three hours, yeah. Um, you know, Thank Morwen, you all, by the way, for listening. Yeah, seriously, if you still, if, if you still are. <laughs> 
We don't get report. We get reports on how many people download it. We don't get reports on how long you actually listen. Yeah. Um, Morwin could and obviously should have chosen differently on at least two different occasions that I look at. I see during those first nine years uh, in Doriath, when uh, first years, the first nine years of Turin's life in Doriath, when Thingol kept sending messengers saying, "Come, come, live here," mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. kept saying, "No, I'm going to stay here in our homestead." Um, and then later, after she did eventually come, and Turin wasn't there, when she refused the counsel of Melian, uh, and, and also even the counsel of her own daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Pride, yeah. Um, hubris, overconfidence. Um, yeah. You know, this, this, well, I can endure which this. Is the, which is that classic tragic flaw, yeah, isn't it? Hubris or overmode? Yeah. Overmode, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like we said before, Neonor seems like the truest victim. I mean, I, she did make a couple of errors. She followed her mom uh, and didn't return, even though her mom told her to go back. But none of her actions seem to be rooted out of pride so much as maybe, well, a little bit of naivete. I think I talked about that. I, yeah. Even her actions with the dragon, um, you know, speak to somebody who who has some pride maybe you know that whole idea of well the children maybe just of Orin, a li- we're not liars <laughs> you know maybe a little rashness we're not craving, think? I mean. I mean, yeah rashness that's a good word um which is one of turin's flaws too i suppose yeah but, uh, yeah it is i mean she's definitely a child of hurin um yeah. but she just compared to the other two yeah. yeah well i think that's why we you know we both kind of land on she's kind of the closest thing to a victim of this curse you know mm-hmm. the closest to a um to a the closest to an innocent yeah, she you know, really is. And um, that's what makes her death so yeah. sad. Her her ending is just deeply tragic in that Greek yeah. sense. Um, yeah, I mean, she she makes some mistakes, but, I, you know, they're not mistakes that I I would normally consider tragic flaws. You know, listening to no. her mother, kind of go, rushing out, you know, without thinking, you Especially know. Especially when her goal in rushing out was to get her mother to come back. Yeah, right, you know, true. We get that a little extra from the novel version. Right, but, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like think she's it, trying to do the right thing desperately. Uh, in yeah, all situations. I think, I think in any other family, she <laughs> she might have been okay, but just, <laughs> yeah. she ends up in this family and kind yeah, of bad gets luck for into her. it all. That's yeah, yeah. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Turin, I think, is the one that just you know Turin seems to me so much like Morwen. You oh, know, doesn't he? Um, yeah, it's this it's much the same kind of flaws. Um, deeply stubborn, writ large, deeply you prideful. Know? Boy, yeah, writ large indeed. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But my goodness. Well, I don't know. I mean, kind of <laughs> have we beat this thing to death yet? I think um, we have. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I guess think, the only thing is why? Why would Tolkien sort of. Yeah. Uh, he loves the U catastrophe. He talks about how crucial that is to a fairy tale. And yet he, he sticks this deeply tragic tale in the middle of his mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why does he go for the catastrophe here and not the U right, catastrophe? Right. Yeah. And, you know, the the thing that strikes me about this is, um, you know, we've both read Ferlin Flieger's Splintered Light. Um, fantastic book. Um, yes. Highly recommended. Uh, highly recommended. Um, it, it really just uh, sheds light, pun absolutely intended, on Tolkien's world. Um, <laughs> she actually has some things to say about some of these themes, and I'm actually going to quote from her sure. uh, here. Um, she says in her book, light and dark are contending forces in Tolkien's fiction. But the emotional weight is on the dark side. Uh, And I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but later in the paragraph, she says, their interdependence, the interdependence of light and dark, Mm -hmm. embodies all the polarities in Tolkien's theme. 
For as light cannot be known without darkness, so hope needs the contrast of despair to give it meaning. Hmm. And free will opposes, yet is defined by, the concept of fate. Wow. I love that quote uh, because it, look at all those things it talks about that we've talked about. That we've hope talked about despair, in the last three hours. Free will and fate. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. And, and yeah. so I think yeah. if I can apply that that sort of uh, idea to this story, I think that's it. I think Turin's I think story so. is there to show us just how bad the world can get um, and to to really um, to show – in, in like really um, by, by vast difference, um, mm-hmm. how good things can, how, you know, how good it will all end up. It will have exactly. a happy ending ultimately. How much um, more important that new catastrophe bad, is. Right. After having because seen this, this catastrophe. catastrophe. That's true. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, for Turin specifically, you know, one of my favorite things is Turin versus Tuor. And we'll get yeah. into Tuor in a, in a couple of chapters. We will. Two uh, chapters. Let's look at the contrast between those two characters. These are two characters who started out with the same, yeah. the same genealogy, um, but they they ended up in vastly different places. Yeah. And um, and I think uh, Tuor's success is heightened by the, the degree of Turin's failure and tragedy. Why? Absolutely. And we will get to him in just a couple of weeks. Yep. In the meantime, though. And I never thought we'd get to this point, but that wraps it up for another episode of the Pets and Kobe (laughs) podcast. Marathon Uh, episode. My goodness. As always, listeners, and even more so today than usual, thank you very much for joining us. Be sure to join us again next time when we move on to Chapter 22. You'll be happy to hear that's a single episode chapter of The Ruin of Doriath. We'll uh, try not to spoil that one for you. Yeah, that's the one where Thingol uh, finally listens to his wife and (laughs) single-handedly beats Morgoth's armies, right? (laughs) Right? Yep, that's the one. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, remember, if you're reading along and like to take notes as much as we do, don't mark up your first edition hardcover, hardcovers. Go to the official library tab on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where you can find links to cheap paperbacks of Tolkien's works, as well as audiobooks, music CDs, and some other cool things for your Tolkien collection. If you buy it through those links, you'll even be helping to support this show without costing you a penny more. Yeah, I think we've uh, saved up enough for a cup of coffee or one of us, maybe. But uh, you can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes. Even if you don't listen to us on iTunes, you can leave us a review. It just takes a few moments in an Apple ID. Some of you have said some amazingly kind things on there, like you must not really be listening to us, but we thank you for it anyway. <laughs> we really do. Thank you. And if you haven't done so already, you may subscribe on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. You can find our RSS, RSS feed. Man, we have been going a long time. Yeah. I'm getting tired. You can find our RSS feed on your on our website or find us on Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or most of the other podcast directories. And a big thank you to those of you who are connecting with us on social media. We set out to start a conversation that everyone could join, and that's why we called it The Prancing Pony. And it's why we have the online common room on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast and on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod. And social media is a great place to share our podcast as well. Retweet us, share us, tell your friends, maybe share one of our shorter episodes yeah please at least at first (laughs) and one last thing as always don't forget to send your questions comments or your awkward family reunion stories to the prancing pony podcast at gmail.com too soon and we'll try to get them into our next episode well three hours is still far too short a time to spend amongst such admirable listeners but until next time farewell friends (laughs) 